Good morning to you folks. Good afternoon. Good evening. Depending on where the hell you are, I am on the sunny Gold Coast, Australia. Got my No Bad Days cup. Delicious. And I'm going to sip from it. And I am going to have a chat with Mr. Gregory Cock. Hey, Greg. Welcome. Whoa, hey. Whoa, there they are again. Wow. <laughs> a festive and, crowd is with us. Yeah, yeah. Hey, one thing I've been aware of uh, when I do introduce people has been not to say, hi, Greg, how are you? Because we just did that 15 minutes ago. <laughs> I, right, I, I understand. Yeah. And that's one of those things, whenever I do go live, I will, um, I'll say that, hey, Greg, how are you? And I'm like, Oh shit, this is so fake because we already did those pleasantries. <laughs> now you said you're in Wisconsin. That is correct. Beautiful Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Deeply Beautiful. ensconced behind the cheddar curtain, as this is the dairy state. The Rick, dairy state. I don't know if you're aware of that. The dairy state. Okay. Lots of cheese. The cheese heads are often referred to as the fans of the Green Bay Packers. And really? I usually say I am not a cheese head because I've been circumcised. I know that's probably a visual we didn't want to have, but uh I tend to not refer to myself as a cheesehead, but yet we are behind the cheddar curtain, as I like to say often. You know, I had an American flatmate many years ago, and we had this circumcision debate, uh, not debate, but uh, conversation. He had no idea what I was talking about. Like, all, all the guys at my age here in Australia are done, and he had no idea that they're what I was talking about. So I yes. take it that everybody there around our ages is done as well. Um, yes. How's that? We're talking about I think dicks we, already. I think, we've, I think we've gotten off to an excellent start. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, I'm going to ask you the question where I start with everybody. And I already told you I have a, a blank slate. Just take a few notes. I like it. Yeah, yeah. What started the love affair with the electric guitar for young Gregory Cockery? Well, it was Jim Hendrix primarily. I mean, it was... Um... You know, I was born in the lofty days of June of 1966, and I was the youngest of seven kids, fine Catholic family, don't you know? And my brother was the oldest, and I was the youngest, and there were five girls in between. So I had a room with my poor brother. So he was in high school from 66 to 1970. So me growing up as a youngin', I would listen to all the tunes that he was into, and he was really into Hendrix, he was into Cream, he was into Graham Funk Railroad, and the James Gang and all these guitar-oriented bands, but particularly Hendrix, I glammed onto for whatever reason. And then um, I, you know, little events would happen. I've told the story a million times, but you know, I remember, you know, had my buddies over at the house and we're running around playing guns or whatever you do when you're a youngin. And we'd go into the bedroom. And there, my brother would be sitting in front of the stereo, and I remember he had this record out. It was Live Cream, Volume One, and we're listening to this racket. And he's just sitting there very reverentially, and I'm like, "What is that?" And he goes. This is Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, and Eric Clapton, collectively known as the Cream, the greatest of their kind on both on all the instruments. And I was like, "Holy caramba!" So it was a, it was a very uh, you know anything your older brother liked, you were already more reverential of anyway. So you know, to me, the guitar player was um, you know especially as I started to really get, I did a report on Jimi Hendrix when I was in third grade, and uh, there was something about the guitar players that was cooler than you know certainly any sports figure, any you know, movie star or any, they were just, they were kind of uh, outliers that were the coolest of all. And so I, I wanted all of that. And cool. I just loved music. I loved hearing about it. I loved reading about it. Uh, so by the time I actually started playing when I was 12, 
Uh, you know, my mom played piano. None of my other siblings played any other instrument, but my mom played piano. And uh, she taught me the boogie-woogie pattern when I was a young, and so I had the blues progression already kind of ingrained in my cabeza at a very young age. So when I started playing, I, I, I came very quickly. I did my first gig within like nine months, and I never looked back. And I knew pretty well after that 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 was my calling, that was my thing. Cool. And uh, much to the chagrin of <laughs> my parental units. But, hey, you know what? It worked out. <laughs> do you remember what guitar you played at your first gig? Was it your first electric? I do. Yeah. Well, my first electric was actually um, uh, at the, at the time I, I had a Les Paul copy. It was a, a Lotus Les Paul, which would have been you know an, a Japanese Les Paul of some sort. But it wouldn't stay in tune for Love Nor Gold. But I wanted that guitar. By, by that time, I'd been bitten by the Zeppelin bug. So initially, you know, Hendrix and Clapton were my you know, Creamier Clapton were my guys, but you know, for some reason, Zeppelin, you know, earlier on d didn't make it under my, um, make it through the radar screen for me. But I started listening to Led Zeppelin 1 a lot uh, as my formative record, even though it had already been out by 10 years at, at that point in time. Uh, but I really wanted a Les Paul. So couldn't afford a real one. So I saved up some money for my um, paper route. And my dad went with me to the store where they just had just a, a multitudinous Les Paul copies. And so I got a, a Lotus Les Paul, and it was more like kind of a sunburst custom with exposed, you know, dual cream humbuckers and um, and a PV Rage amplifier. Yes. But for my first gig, uh, uh, an older brother of a guy that I went to school with um, had a uh, like a 68 SG, and that's actually what I used for my first gig. He let me borrow that guitar, and so I I, I used that guitar and, and just plugged it right into the old Rage that I had on a cafeteria chair. And me and the two other dudes played our songs, and we none of us sang. You know, oh, really? we just played we just played the tunes, and it was yeah. like, you know, Fire by Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze. Um, you know, we did Hey Joe. I think we did a few Stones tunes. We did like. Uh, Hey, you get off of my cloud. We did. Uh, now you're messing with a son of a bitch. Uh, I think that was the extent. And then, and then repeat. You know, we knew our five songs, and then we repeated them. But uh, away we went. Awesome. A '68 SG to do your first gig on. That's. Did you know at the time <clears throat> the significance of that? That that was such a cool guitar to be playing on. Well, I did know that you know it was a Gibson, and, and I knew that Clapton played SGs uh, in Cream, and I knew that Frank Zappa played an SG. So. And Carlos Santana at Woodstock played one with two P90s. I, although at that time I wouldn't have been cognizant of the pickup situation, but I knew that 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 guitar was, you know, rock royalty, as it were. Yeah, I've actually um, got a friend's '73 SG over here that I uh, have been stripped. And man, I, I texted my friend about six months ago and said, "You still got that old SG?" He said. He sent me back a picture and said, it's been rotting under my bed for the last 20 years. You come and grab it. It's better off hanging up on your wall than it is rotting under my bed another 20. Uh, so I've been scrubbing away at the nitro. It just turned to this goo, but uh, I've got it looking like a mirror again. It's great. And Excellent. depending on how it plays, it could be. I'm not a Gibson guy. I'm more of the Strat styles. But right. <clears throat> This, if I had to play a Gibson, it'd be an SG, and I'm hoping that it comes up a treat. I'll even send it away to a really good luthier just to get it tweaked and everything, and it could become one of those one of those guitars. 
Yes, SGs are very friendly. Although everything feels this way. Right. There's a lot of real estate. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure why. It's just the way where the bridge is. Everything just feels like it's over that way for me as I'm trying to play it. But through a PV Rage, I had a very similar amp, and I I did win a PV Rage not long after I started playing. I had a PV Studio Pro 60. Oh, yeah. I didn't know a thing about amps. I thought it was great. <clears throat> that with my Boss HM2 heavy metal pedal, I thought my tone was kicking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, the other day, uh, Charlie Daughtry of the Les Paul Forum on uh, on the inner Googles, he did a thing where he did a shout out to a bunch of people and he copied me on it. Like, show a picture of, you know, your earliest gigging guitar or whatever. So I, I remembered that a guy I played shortly after that, the guy that lent me the SG actually hired me as his like rhythm guitar player. Uh, they were all seniors in high school and I was at that time a freshman. And I had graduated from my lowly Les Paul copy to a, uh, a Fender Lead One, which if you'll remember those guitars, the Lead Two had two single coil pickups and two toggle switches that you could mess around with some different voicings. But the Lead One was just a single humbucker with also two little toggle switches that gave you like a coil tap and like a series and parallel type of thing. I didn't know what the hell they did at the time, but, um, uh, and I was, there were the pictures of us doing a gig at this, uh, at our old grade school during the, you know, the annual fundraiser for the church. And, uh, and behind me was this PV 212 amp. And I can't remember whose amp it was, but I remember borrowing, you know, a little more heavy arsenal for that gig. And it wasn't mine, but it was definitely, you know, one of those old PVs, 212s and the built-in phaser and all that kind of stuff. And because um, people were like, what is that PV amp? I was like, I have no idea. I, all I know is that I borrowed that amp from somebody. And uh, shortly thereafter, I bought a twin. Um, and it was a silver-faced uh, silver twin with a master volume, uh, which never worked right. It had two Altec Lansing speakers. And it was always, it was always blowing the speakers. There was something wrong with the amp, and it just would not work right. And so... Shortly thereafter, a guy who was a few years older than I was that I went to high school with and went to grade school with, he's like, do you mind if I borrow your your twin and you can borrow my amp? And he had uh, this 412 solid state amp with a head that was uh, was called a VT. And it was this weird amp. It had only one volume on it. So it was like a master volume. Um but it had these three buttons on it for almost like rock, country, or jazz. <laughs> and each one of these little buttons slightly changed uh, the voicing on the amp. Um, but, man, it sounded good. And it was solid state, but I would just crank it up and I'd use the volume on the guitar, turn it down, and turn it back up. And, you know, and I didn't know. Again, not having older siblings, not having anybody around me, really, that knew gear lore, per, per se. I love that amp, but I used it. You know, my early, you know, early high school gigs were all done on that amp, you know, so uh, it was interesting. So, you know, it was the trial by trial by fire. But then shortly after this uh, Fender lead one, but I, what I really wanted was the neck pickup on a Fender guitar. That that was the sound I want because I was such a Hendrix fanatic. Yeah. And I just loved there's something about the neck pickup on a, on a Fender style guitar. And I had a buddy at the time that we'd go over as young delinquents and go drinking at his, in his attic. And his parents had set him up with, um, it was a single pickup Fender guitar from the 60s. 
And it wasn't an Esquire. It was a, but it had a single neck pickup. It was like a music master type of, uh, type of guitar with just a single pickup. And it sounded so good. I was like, man, I just want a Fender guitar with this, with a neck pickup on it. So I really wanted a Strat, but my dad had already helped kind of help me finance my first couple of forays into the guitar. And I was like, dad, I want a Strat. He's like, hell no. So I was taking lessons from this guy. I was probably about 15 years old, 15, 16 years old. And um, he was selling a 68 Telecaster. And at that time, a 68 Telecaster was was no great shakes. You know, it was, he was selling it for 400 bucks. And somehow I was able to corral my dad in with whatever money I had left over to buy this guitar. And that's really how I started playing Telecasters. That is that I had that guitar and it was a, such a formative time in my uh, existence that I learned all my tricks on this style of guitar. And that always stuck with me. And so I always, even though I played strats, you know, years later I ended up playing strats, I always liked the sound of tellies more for whatever yeah. reason. And um, there you have it. So there's quite a, a, um, a country um, vibe about your playing. Uh, did that come in early on in the piece? Did you pick up on country players or stuff? Or? It, it did, but not because I like country music. I did not grow up listening to country music. I did not like country music. Uh, it was really through Albert Lee. It was through two English guys, really. It was through Albert Lee. Well, I should say I, it was kind of a confluence maybe like sophomore year in high school. So I'm like, you know, 15, 16 years old. Uh, I saw the Allman Brothers play. Um, and, for, and again, because it was not in my brother's record collection, it was in one of my older sister's record collections. But it was not something I grew up listening to a whole bunch. So they kind of sideswiped me. I saw them at this festival that's, you know, this local festival in, in Wisconsin, which is still very famous, called Summerfest. Runs for 10 days and... Uh, everyone who's touring in a given summer will play at this event. And so we waited all day, you know, it was festival seating, waited all day. The Allman Brothers came out and it blew my mind, right? Uh, so I went home and I unearthed all my sister's Allman Brothers records, which were primarily live at the Fillmore and then the record Brothers and Sisters. So, you know, especially Brothers and Sisters had a little bit more, you know, Dickie Betts, you know, did his, his kind of fiddle lick thing that he was doing on on Ramblin' Man and on Jessica. So I started, that was that was the kind of my first country licks that I would do were really Dickie Betts-isms. But also at the same time, I had learned, I, the, there was a Clapton record that came out called Just One Night, which came out in 1980. And the other guitar player on that record was Albert Lee. And so I heard Albert Lee doing all this stuff. And I was like, this is the coolest shit I've ever heard. Uh, I don't know what he's doing because it's certainly not the blue scale. It's like blue scale plus a whole bunch of other stuff that didn't make sense to me. So I I started getting up to snuff on who Albert Lee was and tried to get one of his you know solo records and tried to get to the bottom of that. Uh, but also I was a big Dire Straits fan. So uh, hearing hearing that clean Fender guitar being plucked in the way that that was my whole first chicken picking thing was from from Mark Knopfler. So yeah. between Albert Lee, Mark Knopfler. And Dickie Betts, that was kind of my first foray. And then shortly thereafter, there was another English guy who was playing with Ricky Skaggs by the name of Ray Flack. And so that was being played on the radio at the time, and I actually liked it. I mean, I liked the songs. And even though it was country, it, it spoke to me, And which is kind of funny because one of uh, uh, Ray Flack's biggest influences was Richie Blackmore. So yeah. he had this, this country thing, you know, from listening to James Burton and – you know, Jimmy Bryant and all the usual suspects. And, uh, but he also had this, 
rock sensibility from listening to Richie Blackmore. So that's how I w started going down the rabbit hole. Uh, Steve Morris, too, at the time. Steve Morris's first solo record he did after the drags was, uh, you know, the introduction. And he had Albert Lee on there, that tune General Lee. So um, that was another kind of segue. And then from there, you know, Roy Buchanan. I started listening to, you know, Jimmy Bryant and Chet Atkins and and whatever I could get my hands on. But um, that that was kind of the original impetus to start getting into that music. Cool, cool. Because I, I can always tell if somebody's faking it. It's like you're just playing country licks, but you don't play country. You're really a metal guy or something. And well, that see, and that's like that's an interesting point that you make there, because to me, I mean, I kind of strayed a little bit away from that, even though it's just part of my anatomy. I think chicken picking is funky. You know what I mean? I yeah. think it's more funky than it is. I, 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 I have a tendency to use it more in kind of funky blues type of applications. Uh, but there was always a little bit of funk and swamp in, in, in the original kind of chicken picking stuff that I was attracted to. But at some point, it became another uh, arrow in the quiver of the, of the shredder. You know what I mean? There was always a shredder version of a of a chicken picking thing and that kind of turned me off i mean it was great i mean because they you know because it was technically challenging and so i think that's what attracted a lot of shredders to that realm but usually when a lot of people go hey i'm gonna do that i'm like yeah i'm gonna go over here yeah <laughs> i'm gonna go the other way yeah yeah um and, and plus it, a lot of them you know a lot of compression they'll use the compressor and get that clean sound with the compression on so like you know and that's all great and well and good and if it inspires people it's all you know whatever whatever gets you through the night. But um, to me, I never liked using compressors with the chicken picking stuff because it, um, even though it, it does make it easier, I will be honest, you know, every now and again, I'll use a compressor. I'm like, why don't I use one of these? Cause it certainly makes, <laughs> it certainly <laughs> makes it easier. But, but there's something about uh, having, you know, more of a dynamic control of not using the compressor that attracts me to, uh, uh, to do the chicken picking stuff. And, you know, most of the stuff I like to listen to is the old school country stuff. So when people will mention, Hey, have you heard this guy? I heard this guy. I'm like, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Cause most of the stuff I listen to is old. And it's really surprising because I, when you started listing the, the influences, etc., I really thought that you were a country guy at heart. Like, cause you, no, you don't sound like guy. you're faking it. You don't sound like a, you, you you're faking it yeah, like, was, like some was, people do. I was a blues rock guy. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but, you know, I started really liking, um, you know, I started playing with people that uh, had country tunes in their set, even very early on. You know, when I started doing, you know, my high school band was, you know, I had, we did my own songs. I always had kind of a tune that I wrote. I used to have a song called Driving My Rig, which <laughs> which is funny because I used to refer to it in my, you know, adolescent, um, you know, uh, pigginess. I always referred to my, uh, my, <laughs> my kit, as it were, as my rig. But so, you know, but of course a rig is a truck. And so I had this tune called Driving My Rig, which was really my chicken pick and lick or tune that I would do. And it was, I had a little melody and then I would just solo basically. Um, but I played in bands, you know, my, I played in a wedding band and we would do the country tunes of the day in addition to, you know, rock stuff and so on and so forth. And then, of course, we do polkas, waltzes and tangos and all this stuff that you would do in a wedding band. Um, and then I, you know, in college, I, you know, I had accumulated uh, the country chops because I, I went from the initial taste of Albert Lee to 
hearing him play with Dave Edmonds on, you know, the repeat when necessary record, that version of Sweet Little Lisa blew my mind. Uh, and then I got some other stuff with it. But then I started to get into, um, someone made me a tape of uh, Danny Gatton's first couple of solo records. This is way before he got signed with, you know, and before 88 Omaha Street and Cruise and Deuces and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, you know, I heard Unfinished Business and Redneck Jazz pretty early on. Uh, but I really got into Jimmy Bryant. Someone made me like a collect, you know, a, a, a tape of all this Jimmy Bryant, Speedy West stuff. And I started listening to that. And then I got into Jerry Reed and I started getting into Chet Atkins and Merle Travis. And, um, you know, it just started adding it to my arsenal. And so the music that I was writing, there was definitely a country aspect to it um, that I thought was cool. You know, a lot of songwriters at the time I was in, I was really into John Hyatt and there, there was all, you know, all these blues America. It was before it was called Americana, but all that music had this blues rock country influence that was all very organic and cool and intermingled very nicely. And so that's why I was into it. It was way before country turned into what it is now. <laughs> it ain't what it used to be, is it? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Some of those influences that, that you mentioned there, uh, you know, Jerry Reed, Mel Travis, etc. Um, I'm good friends with a chap that lives here, an American guy named uh, Louis Shelton. Have you heard of Louis? Yeah, I have, as a matter of fact. I think I met him when I was over there. Yeah. Lovely chap. Mate, he's just around the corner from me. He's a he's great friend of mine. Uh, and I remember asking him, um, you know, did you ever get into Hank Marvin and all this kind of stuff? And he just sort of laughed at me and said, nah, to me, that was 12-year-old stuff. You know, we were played Jerry Reed and, and and all that kind of thing. And it was just years ahead in his book. And right. uh, yeah, it, it's funny, just the, the different side of the pond, as you were. Um, right. Yeah, how you know, all the English guys are, oh, no, it's it's all about Hank. But then the American guys, it's a completely right. different pool of players. Yeah, yeah. But you, you touched on Mark Knopfler. I got to yeah. say, man, Mark was my first huge guitar hero. Just when right. I started playing guitar, 86, 87, they did this big Brothers in Arms tour where they came right. out to Australia and it was all on the TV and everything. And you know, I just learned to play a D chord and A chord, etc. And then I watched that and went, oh, I want to do that. Oh, whatever that yeah. guy's doing. And he's not using yeah, a yeah. pick. Okay. Okay. And I, I used to tape my fingers up so that I could hold it as he does because <laughs> my sure. head just wouldn't yeah. do that. And it's funny, I revert to that style of playing a lot. But generally, I'm holding a pick, so I disable it in there, and I use those two fingers instead, and and gotcha. do this kind of thing, and that gets me in that sound. And like you were saying, the percussiveness of it, there's a funkiness about it. He doesn't just go dong to a note; he goes dong. There's just exactly. that little triplet thing that happens right before it, and and I just love that. You know, that was that was my thing. Is like you know just. And it wasn't really the kind of, you know, like Sultan's a swing per se. It was like, uh, like just the ballady stuff that he would do, where he would just throw the, as you said, those little, those little pops, those little rakes into notes. Yeah. That's what I dug. And that's what I took away from it and continue to do to this very day. <laughs> so Greg, we were talking about, uh, some of the guitars that you played on, um, you know, the 68, 68 seems to be a, a regular thing. 68 SG, 68 thin line telly, um, what about amps? When was the first time you played a good amp that made you go, oh. Well, it's interesting because I really didn't, I didn't have a clue. You know, I, I really didn't. I just knew, I, I instinctively stayed away from pedal. I remember I had like a, a an MR, a MXR 
Distortion Plus that I got for Christmas, like in, you know, 1980 or something, right? And uh, and I liked the way that sounded because I was trying to get that blues breaker tone. And so when I would go into a, or a cream type of sound, but at some point I was just like, no, there's no pedals for me. And I bought a Wawa pedal around the same time I bought a, a Crybaby. But I got it into my head that pedals were cheating for some reason. And so I I played without pedals for years. I just I just knew you plug into an amp and you turn it up. That and and that's what I did. And so and to me it didn't matter because I, I had some solid state amps that sounded good that way when you turned it up. Cause I, I really didn't play with much gain, you know? Um until I was like um I think I was a junior in high school, maybe. Yeah. Um I was in this local music store, and at that time, you know, they were trying to say that this, you know, were tubes still worth it? Maybe, you know, a solid state amp was the way to go. And I didn't know. I didn't, you know, I didn't have buddies like, hey, plug into this Super Reaver, plug into this Marshall. To me, a Marshall was, you know, pie in the sky. Like, I couldn't afford it, and it was too big. And, uh, you know, I did play a buddy of mine's Marshall, you know, JMP, and it sounded awesome. But to me, it was like, you know, not attainable. And so I was in a music store and I played a 212 combo. It was a Yamaha G100 212. Wow. And I plugged <laughs> I plugged straight into that amp. And you know, and I still have recordings of what I did back then. And it sounds great. I used the clean sound when I played my clean stuff. And then I went over to the overdrive sound, and the overdrive sound sounded good. So I basically I'd show up with a guitar, a chord, and that amp, have my clean sound, have my overdrive sound. We're done. Um but what's interesting is there was a transition at that point in time because I was, you know, I was very much into playing that telly. I'd worked out this kind of, you know, on onboard channel switching of just, you know, I played rhythm and like mellow leads on my neck pickup. Sometimes I do rhythm in the middle position to get a little bit more girth. And then I'd go for the jugular by going to that bridge pickup. And I did that forever. And then I went to this. But the summer of my junior year of high school, I got a little scholarship to go to this jazz camp um, because the, the the band director at the I went to two different high schools. I went to one high school for freshman and sophomore year and then junior and senior. I went to another school. And when I went to the other school, that guy was far more encouraging and recognized that I had talent and was trying to foster it and and encourage it and so on and so forth. So I got a. a, a a scholarship to this jazz camp. And while I was there, you know, the, the, the guitar teacher up there was really, really cool. He was very, he was a jazz guy, but he recognized what I was doing. He understood this blues, you know, country rock hybrid. And I was also into some jazz guys. So I was, you know, I had some ability to, you know, feign more of a kind of a swing approach to, to various different things. And, uh, and so he turned me on to Larry Carlton and Robin Ford while I was there. So nice. this is probably 1983. So he played me some, you know, Yellow Jackets with Robin Ford. And he played me, uh, uh, he had some compilation with Larry Carlton playing at a jazz festival. And I heard that sound. And he's like, man, these guys, you know, they, they're into the blues thing. They get the bending and the vibrato stuff, but they also know a little bit more about harmony. And so during that little trip to this, you know, week-long jazz camp, Another guitar player there was my same age, had a 335. He always wanted to play a telly. And now I had this lust for the sound I was hearing on these records that this guy was playing. So for the remainder of the uh, camp, I played this guy's Cherry 335 and he played my Telecaster. We'd swap back and forth and 
So when I got back from that jazz camp, my, my dad had got me a job at this, uh, this factory for the summer, one of his clients, and I was making pretty good dough. So I saved up money and I ended up buying a uh, 1983 blonde ES-335.NET reissue. Uh, and that was really my main guitar for five years, five, six years, all through college. Uh, I always had a telly in the arsenal, but that was my main guitar. And that guitar, through a um, you know a G100 212, actually sounded pretty good. You know, as I started to know more guitar players that were older than me, they're like, you know, I was like, how do I get that Larry Carlton sound? And how do I get this? And at th that time, I was really into you know Danny Toller and Dickie Betts from the Almond Brothers, and they had that neck pickup sound on a 335 uh, that I really dug. And they're like, well, you need a tube amp really to get that sound. I'm like, tube amp, what? You know. So at one point, this guy who worked at this music store was a buddy of mine, still is actually. He was selling a, a Music Man uh, 112RD amplifier, RD 112, RD say, and it had a single uh, JBL E120 speaker in it, and that was my sound. That amp with that 335 was my sound for many, many well. It seemed like many years back then, but, you know, a couple, couple, three, four years, that was my main thing. And, uh, you know, I should also mention, I always kind of revert to the reason why. So I started playing guitar and I was really into Albert King and I was really into Hendrix. And then I had uh, these other tools in my arsenal of kind of adding this country thing, a little bit of jazz influence. And to me, that was my voice. And nobody around me at the time was into that stuff. All the people my age were into Rush. They were into Van Halen. They were into punk. You know, no one was into what I was into. So to me, I was like, I got the inside track on this thing. I'm going to bring this shit back. Yeah. You know, and I, I'd been to see, I saw Muddy Waters play live, you know, all this different stuff. I thought, man, this, this is my thing. And then I hear this guy playing on this, on this David Bowie record, who's doing these Albert King licks. I'm like, holy shit. Someone has beat me to the punch and he's doing it better. And the tone is ridiculous. I was like, I got to find out who this son of a bitch is. So I remember I got a guitar player magazine. And uh, it was talking about the new David Bowie record. And it was an interview with Nile Rodgers. So I see this picture of Nile Rodgers. He's playing a Strat. And I was like, well, this has got to be the guy that played on that record. And then he starts talking. He's like, no, no, no. We, we brought this guy, Stevie Ray Vaughan, in. And, and at the time, I didn't know anybody named Vaughn. So I'm saying it Vaughan, right? <laughs> and, and, and so I understand that this guy, Stevie Ray Vaughan, has a record out on his own. And I remember I was driving with this buddy of mine. And when his old uh, Mercury Bobcat, which was this little guitar, it was like the Mercury version of a Ford Pinto. And we're driving in this car and they said, here's the new song from Stevie Ray, you know, Vaughn. I don't even know if I knew how to, I, if I, maybe I even had the record before I heard it on the radio because I didn't know how to say Vaughn. Because yeah. I remember I went into the record store and said, I'm looking for this record by this guy named Stevie Ray Vaughan. And they're like, you mean Vaughn? I'm like, whatever. So we went in and there were only two copies of the record in the store and I bought one of them. And I remember going to my buddy's house. It was on a Saturday afternoon. We're in high school. We're degenerates. So we're drinking beer and, you know, smoking weed and whatnot. And, and I'm listening to this record and it becomes obvious to me that one, that I was never going to do what this guy was already doing. You know what I mean? That he had just done it better than anybody who was going to do it as far as like, rebranding blues rock guitar in that way you know and uh but i knew that that's what this style of playing was what i wanted to do right 
So I remember going home and my and I was a little buzzed and I went home and I forced my parents to listen to it. I was like, do you hear what this guy is doing? This is what I've been talking about. This is the kind of music that I want to do. But at the same token, I thought, yeah, he's just done it about as well it's ever going to be done. I think I need to get, find another voice. So then a couple of months later, I find myself up at this jazz camp and this guy recommends uh, you know, me listening to Larry Carlton and, and Robin Ford. And, and then I started playing a 335. I thought that's a different voice for me, you know, so I'm going to do that. So I ended up, uh, little did I know that there was millions of other people with the same thought, but you know, you're young and you're delusional. So <laughs> I ended up playing this, this 335 and, and that kind of was a pivotal moment for me. Probably more, more than you had bargained for when you asked that question, Rich. Well, or Rick, sorry. <laughs> that, that, man, that's why... <clears throat> No, as I said to you before we went on air, I've had the odd person that just gives you a yes/no answer, and you go, "Oh fuck, this is going to be hard." But mate, that's why I sit here and I just listen to the story. It's actually funny, Greg, because I know you through YouTube, etc. A lot of the people that I talk to is who I'd be watching on YouTube if I I don't particularly watch TV. I just watch YouTube because I can customize right. it to whatever I want. And sometimes I forget that I'm actually talking to the person, and it's it's almost like a, a custom video. Where as they're talking, I go, oh, I'd like to know about this now. And I simply say it. It's like, hello, it interacts. <laughs> it's weird. Awesome. Yeah. But speaking of YouTube, that's how I got to know of you. Uh, yes. And that's recent years. I'd say it's probably about five years ago or something that I stumbled upon you. Um, and that's a long time ago. You're talking about early 80s. Um, what? kept you going all that time up until now what what was greg cock doing up until he became a youtube phenom so to speak well it's it's <clears throat> it's an interesting thing um so i got done <clears throat> excuse me with uh college probably 19 i did go to school for music i really majored in beer if we're honest but um <laughs> i i went there and i and i went for jazz guitar and i didn't really want to be you know, it was a weird thing. I wanted to go to Texas. You know, Steve Ray Vaughan came out, and then the Fabulous Thunderbirds came out, and, and Delbert McClinton, I started, and then Joe Ely, all these people um, that I was hearing about. And and then plus I knew that, you know, T-Bone Walker and Albert Collins and, you know, Freddie King and all these guys that were from uh, Texas, you know, it just, it's ZZ Top. You know, it all just reeked to me as the place to be, plus the food, you know. So I was researching where to go to school, and um, Herb Ellis, the legendary jazz guitar player, had just opened up a, I think it was called the Southwest Guitar Conservatory. Maybe that, maybe that. It was in San Antonio. So I was researching to go to the school. That's where I wanted to go. And, um, and my parents were freaking terrified. You know, they did not, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. You know, I've got four kids and every time my kids got, you know, a place they want to go, you know, we take them on a tour there. You know, my oldest daughter, she wanted to go to, you know, she got into all these schools and, you know, we flew to Washington, D.C. We went all these different places. My parents, I was number seven. They were like, go someplace local. We'll pay for it, but leave us alone. Right. So, but, you know, and they were very interested in me getting a traditional degree and, and, and joining, you know, Everybody else, all the lemmings on their quest to, you know, the American dream of a sort. So they were not interested in me going to the school. They didn't, you know, they didn't try, you know, and again, I'm not holding it against them. You know, I, I understand their, their generation and their, uh, and I wasn't real fearless in that regard either, to be honest. You know, I wasn't like, well, 
eat shit, mom and dad. I'm going to go down to Texas. So I, I was scared. I didn't know what to do. So I ended up uh, going to a, um, uh, a local college. And it, the, the, my first semester after high school, I actually took off because I found out the school that I was going to, which was supposed to be the jazz school in the state, uh, didn't have a guitar instructor. I'm like, I'm not going someplace where there's no guitar instructor. They had a classical guy. I'm not interested in that at all. So I took off a semester and just partied and raised hell. And it was quite discouraging. You know, when, when all your buddies are going elsewhere and, you know, making forays into the world of the grown-up and you're still living at home, not going to school, trying to figure out what you're going to do, it was depressing as hell. And I remember, you know, trying to get some horrible jobs and it was the worst. So I ended up finding out that that guitar instructor that was so cool to me at that jazz camp when I was in high school actually was the head of the jazz department at the school in Wisconsin um, called Stevens Point, University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. We went and visited. It turns out I ended up going there. My buddy that I had, um, who was a year older than me, was also going to school there that we were buddies. Uh, so that seemed like a good fit. But I didn't really want, you know, I, I didn't want to be, it was a jazz guitar performance degree, but I, w- I had no delusions about, you know, playing because a lot of jazz guitar players I knew were in, or especially in the world of academia you know they expect you to play a you know a ES175 or the like with flat wound strings into a polytone amplifier no bending of strings no distortion no cool vibrato I had no intention of doing any of that but I did want to know how to be able to be literate in music I wanted to know how to write music I wanted to know how to read it to a uh, you know a professional extent and I wanted to know how to play over chord changes. I didn't, you know, I, did, I had no desire of wanting to know 50 jazz standards by heart and be able to, you know, play all over them, you know, as I got my, wore my tux playing, you know, society gigs on the weekends. I didn't want to do that, but I did want to know what the hell I was doing. So I went to school there and learned um, to be able to function you know, and I still, and I learned a lot of stuff that I'm still learning from today. You know, I'll go, yeah, I remember learning that back in the day, but I didn't really take it to heart. So <clears throat> after college, during the college, I always had my own bands. I was gigging with my own bands, and they were always variations of blues bands. Um, you know, some with horns. We did, you know, I had a horn band that we did a bunch of Crusaders stuff and, and, um, you know, some James Brown stuff, as I recall. And we did, uh, uh, we did some Almond Brothers tunes that we'd put horns to and other blues kind of standardy stuff. We did some of the, the Blues Brothers stuff. Um, and then um, I started writing my own tunes and I started to, you know, go back to um, Milwaukee and sit in with all my blues friends back home. And there was a, uh, a keyboard player named Junior Brantley who uh, played with the Fabulous Thunderbirds. He was in a famous band from Milwaukee that was kind of the blues band around town called Short Stuff. He kind of took me under his wing, kind of showed me the ropes. He was very, very encouraging. You know, I got to be pretty good at a young age. So he's like, man, you know, you've, you know, the future's in front of you. You can do anything you want to do. And so I had delusions of grandeur. You know, I thought, hey, you know, I'm playing with all the hot shots in town. Um, You know, I'm going to do this thing. And I always wanted to have my own band and do my own music that was going to be you know, I used Led Zeppelin as kind of a, a as a template. Not that I, you know, had delusions of being Led Zeppelin, but I liked how they were bona fide influenced by the real roots music, be it blues, rockabilly, you know, jazz, world music, whatever else. And but they also were cognizant of, you know, cream and all that kind of stuff. And then they kicked the, 
the can down the field a little bit, you know, as did Hendricks and so on and so forth and cream. So I had delusions of doing the same stuff, adding yet a few more elements of this stuff, but still being influenced by that early root stuff as well. And, and really taking uh, that stuff seriously, you know, not like, I mean, because I, at the time I used to always laugh at these metal dudes because they'd be interviewed. Well, we go back to the, you know, the source, you know, like Zeppelin. I'm like, that's not the source, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so I, that's what I wanted to do. So right after I got out of, you know, kind of like my last year of college, I was going back into Milwaukee and I was playing with this gal who sang, sang great. Um, she played like, you know, she sang like Aretha and Bonnie Raitt and played piano like Chuck Lavelle. She was great in an organ. And she had just got off the road with this band called the Bodines who had just, you know, toured the world opening up for U2. And she had some interest in, and uh, by management of one of those bands to try to help out. And so I was in her band. I got into her band cool. and I started writing material and I just really wanted to, you know, tour the world and be a professional musician, writing original music and this kind of roots template. Uh, after a year of playing with her, I realized that, you know, I, I needed to have my own band or I needed to do my own thing. Uh, I got hooked up with a guy who could really sing. I didn't sing at all at that time. I wasn't comfortable in doing it. Um, and I got hooked up with this bass player from Texas who lived up here, played bass and he, and he wrote country stuff, but still had this blues thing. So it was, again, this kind of marriage of country and blues and rock and roll in the old fashioned sense. Uh, so we started doing some stuff and we started to get some traction. He bolts down to Nashville, uh, to be a songwriter. And so once he left, we had this calendar full of gigs in order to fulfill and I wasn't, you know, going down to Nashville and he wasn't exactly saying, hey, join me down in Nashville. And so I found a drummer who could sing great and a bass player who was great. And we fulfilled uh, all the gigs of this other band and we never looked back. I mean, you know, we did. I had already at that time some arrangements of some covers that that we did, but I had a bunch of my own tunes and I just started writing a ton of stuff. So and our band became very popular pretty much right away uh in town here so i think i had our first tape that we put out was like a 1990 a 91 uh we recorded our first cd that came out in 93 and we sold a bunch of them in the area and we're really just interested in trying to you know further the band along as much as possible but it was difficult because it was uh it was a band that coupled and they were mostly vocal tunes but it was like it was, if I had to compare it to something, it was like Little Feet, you know, it was like, um, it was blues, it was country, it was jazz, it was funk all thrown together. But, you know, the guitar was the focal, you know, the focus of what we were doing, although the vocals were cool, the, the tunes were good. Uh, T. Lavitz from the Dixie Dregs played on our first record and played great keyboard stuff. And he was trying to help me, you know, uh, he got us to Johnny Sandlin, who produced a bunch of the Almond Brothers stuff, who was like, hey, I really like this band, trying to hook us up with you know, labels. It was just very, very difficult. It was, you know, it was difficult being from Wisconsin. We weren't a very, um, you know, they weren't three minute pop songs, although they were accessible, but we weren't exactly, you know, visually appealing. You know, it wasn't like, you know, at that time, the Allman Brothers were making their comeback. And I thought, you know, we were in that realm. It was like guys who had long hair, who knew how to play, and we were an entertaining band in terms of, you know, we knew how to put together a show and, you know, and I could MC pretty well. And, you know, the vocals were cool and people loved the band. Um, but it was really difficult getting it going. So 
one thing that kind of pivoted me out of the local hero stance, if you will, of playing around the area. And we do showcases down in, you know, you know, uh, Memphis and Minneapolis and, you know, Nashville here and there was <clears throat> some guys from Fender came out and saw the band and were like, you know, they were like, we need to have you do clinics. We need you have, uh, we're going to pass your tapes. So that's what really kind of foisted me out of just local, uh, local stuff was Fender invited the band to play at this big event down in Nashville. And we played and people still talk about that. Oh, the first time I heard you play was at Nashville when you were on the show with, you know, Tommy Emmanuel and the Helicasters and yada, yada, yada. So that's really what kind of foisted me uh, to more of a larger audience was doing the Fender stuff. Cool. Um, and so that's around 1995, yep. 95-ish. Then I started doing stuff for Fender. And then we played at that thing in 96 where we were down in Nashville um but it was still difficult i was still putting out my own records by that point i think i put out you know i had the first red cock and the tone controls record then we put out a record called uh strats got your tongue which was an instrumental record which someone reissued later on <clears throat> people always think that's a newer record that was done in 94 wow you know <clears throat> um and so that record came out and um which was really good from the fender angle and from being a guitar player angle but really kind of limited you know, the fact that we were much more accessible because we did have all this vocal stuff that, you know, three-part harmonies and it was a cool band, right? But it was just kind of one of those things where at that time, now I'm married, I'm starting to have kids. You know what I mean? It's like, what's good? I got to start, stop being in bars every night, yeah. slugging it out uh, and start figuring out a way to, you know, make more of a living doing this stuff. So I started to do sessions down in Chicago. Uh, for a hot minute, I played with my buddy Willie Porter's record really took off. He had a Great singer-songwriter, acoustic guitar player, kind of Leo Kotke-esque chops with this great vocals. And his band was killer. We did a double bill with him. And um, uh, I remember sitting in with his band at this club in Minneapolis. <laughs> what was funny about that night was I had known Willie from playing the clubs in Minneapolis, but we or clubs in Milwaukee. But now we're doing this co-bill up and, you know, we were opening up for him basically in Minneapolis at this club. <laughs> and the marquee, it said, Willie Porter and Greg Cock, C-O-C-K. And I remember, <laughs> I, I remember I went out, the first thing I said was, I'm surprised there's not more ladies here this evening. So we did, our, <laughs> we did our set and it went fine. And then all of a sudden we get done playing and, you know, there was a decent crowd for us and the place just gets freaking mobbed with people. <clears throat> and Willie starts playing. And I was like, and he had a great band. He had this fretless bass player that played like six string fretless bass. The drummer was killer. Uh, killer conga player hit a fiddle guy keyboard player and they come out and they are just destroying and uh and he has me sit in so i go up and i sit in with his band and when we start jamming it's like i thought the roof was going to explode so i remember that night thinking i have been banging my head against the wall doing my own band i need to go on autopilot and play with somebody else who's got some shit going on yeah and, and not worry about everything for a while. So I started playing with Willie, and I did that for nah, six months, a year maybe. And, uh, you know, we did all kind. Of, we went out to L.A. and recorded at Ocean Way, and there was all this hubbub. It was, it was classic music business stuff where you think things are going to happen, and they don't. And uh, in the meantime, I'm still slugging it out, doing whatever I got to do. I'm Mr. Momming it for the most part at that point in time. You know, my wife was a successful graphic designer at that point, and, I was at home watching the kids when I wasn't doing, you know, my gigs on weekends, 
at that point, maybe doing 10 days, two weeks out of the year with Fender uh, up until like the year 2001, really leading up, leading up to NAMM show 2001, you know, I'm juggling this thing of being Mr. Mom, you know, playing with my buddy Willie here and there, doing my own stuff, doing these Fender things, doing sessions down in Chicago. Um, and I remember uh, my wife at that point, we were going to have child number three. And uh, and she was bumming out. She's like, you know, I'm working all the time. I got a half hour, an hour commute to work every day. So that's two hours in the car, eight hours at this freaking job. You know, I miss seeing the kids. Man, I would just love to be able to sit home with the or, or to to be an at home mom for you know if if it worked out for a year, it would be fabulous. And I was yeah. like, man, you know, in order for me to do anything music wise, where I'd be making what I'm making now, plus making what you're making. You know, I'd, I'd have to go on the road. It would have to be a road thing. It's like, well, even if it's for a year, it would be awesome. So I remember leading into the uh, NAM show of 2001, Fender had this new amp that they were, little did I know the politics behind this amp and how people's careers were on the line, but they had this amp called the Cyber Twin that they were working on. Uh-huh. Where they had built this device that was filled with all these cool effects, but also the ability to kind of use preamp tubes along with digital technology to recreate the greatest amps of all time and yada yada so they were telling me about the sample like we want you to unveil it for us at at the nam show i'm like great um and i and then i'm leading into that i'm like listen if there's anything you want you know i could do more for you please let me know because you know i told them about the situation and like well we're kind of limited with our budgets and they're kind of giving me the you know the the come hither look but with the hand kind of in the stop position so um, but they did have this opportunity for me to unleash this amp. So they sent me this amp and, you know, at that time I had no time, you know, I had, you know, I had got these two young, two, now three young kids at home. And, um, I remember I took that amp, they sent it to me like 10 days before the NAM show. They finally send me this prototype of this amp. And I remember I had to take it over to my sister's house so I could have some time alone with this thing. And I had three hours, basically, where I went in, I figured out how it worked, I came up with sounds that I thought were really cool, I came up with fun ways to be able to manipulate the the pedal board that came with this thing, along with the, which is really unlike me, because <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not exactly, uh, you know, technically real astute, but I do have an intrinsic sense of fun when it comes to gear, so I'll figure out what I need to figure out to do fun stuff, right? So I came up with this stuff and I ended up flying out to the NAMM show and it was, you know, it was a lot of pressure. You know, I remember they were they were putting together this theater where they were going to debut this amp, right? And it was it was high pressure. I remember that I was just to play. They didn't even want me to talk. They just wanted me to play and they were going to have the guy who was the marketing manager of amplifiers kind of read all the talking points about this amp as I displayed it. And so the main marketing guy was in the crowd and we were like going through dress rehearsals of what this thing was. He's like, no, no, we can't just say this. And da, 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 da. And it was really getting kind of ugly and weird. Right. And I'm just sitting there going, for fuck's sake, is this happening to me? So finally, I just said, hey, do you mind if I just talk? You know, I'll, I'll explain what I'm doing here. The sounds yeah. I've come up with. They're like, fine, go ahead. Yeah. So I was like, great. So I play one of the songs. I get done. I was like, listen, here's the sounds I'm using. This is what this thing does. Yada, 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 yada. And all of a sudden the guy stops and he looks over at the marketing manager, the amplifiers. He's like, just introduce him and get off. 
<laughs> so I was like, okay. Yeah. So for those next four days or five days, I did seven half hour sets a day for everyone in the music business you could possibly imagine. And, um, and it was after that, I mean, after the Friday, I remember I walked into this area and first of all, the president of Fender at the time was Bill Schultz. He was a God, you know, in the industry, he still remained, he's the one that brought Fender back, you know? Yeah. And I remember he came up to me and he shook my hand and he's like, congratulations, Greg, you're the talk of the show. And I was like, first, first of all, the fact that he would remember your name was a big deal. And the fact that you're the talk of the show was cool because little did I know at the time, I didn't find out until years later <clears throat> that he had poo-pooed the project of this cyber twin months before. He's like, listen, Guitar Center told me they're not interested in this, this amplifier. They want nothing to do with it. Shit can the project. It's a failure. Just don't do it. But the people that were doing it was like, we're way too far along with this thing now. It's going to revolutionize the industry. We just got to go for it. Yeah. So they showed up and had me in the place to do all this stuff without Bill even knowing. So if it had been a failure, they all would have got fired. I had no idea. Yeah. So little did I know that they were, they were and I remember going in this little area of the NAMM show and the guy, you know, the guy that I was dealing with with our relations at the time shows me this computer screen. And he goes, here's the budget that we have for you for this year. And I knew that that was the nut that I needed to make in order to have my wife stay home, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'm like, thank Christ. So I remember calling up my wife going, we did it. It's we're good. So for at least a year, we're good. So at that particular point in time, three things happened. The Fender people kind of opened up their wallets and kind of made me as it would develop into as in their words, not mine, their brand ambassador, right? That I yep. did for 15 years, really. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Hal Leonard Publishing asked me to be their brand ambassador and have me rewrite their Hal Leonard guitar method. Um, which was right at the same time. At the same time, Steve Vai's people saw me play and they wanted me to be on Favored Nation. So I got this record deal. I got this book deal and the Fender thing all opened up at the same time. That is great, um, man. Everything just fell into place, huh? The, the stars aligned. They did. They you did. have it to put your balls process. on the line. You really have to put yes. your balls on the line sometimes. There's, I know some people, some very talented fucking people who are just too safe. Are they just too safe? They don't want to take that jump and go, you know what? It's all or nothing. I'm either going to fucking do this or I'm not. And you that's living proof right there. You just well, you know, I, it's one of those things where, you know, I never would have thought in a million years about doing a book. You know what I mean? I never would have thought in a million years about explaining a digital amplifier. You know what I mean? I, none of that stuff was in my book. But at the same time, I, you know, I, it was always in my mind, you always say yes, unless it's absolutely out of your wheelhouse. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember doing sessions where they'd call me up and they'd say, I was doing a lot of TV stuff at the time. And uh, they'd call me up and I remember this one time, you know, again, I'm Mr. Momming it. So I'm, I'm at home. I you know the people that would book the sessions would call me up and like, we got a 30 second spot. It's for, you know, whatever product it was. Um, we need to, do you play flamenco guitar? And I said, well, how long is it for? They said, it's a 30-second spot. I go, yes, I can. <laughs> and I, I didn't even have a nylon string guitar at the time. So I went and I, and I bought like a $300 nylon string guitar that sounded decent to me. And I went to the library and I got a Paco de la Chia record uh, to listen to on the way down to the session. 
And then I got there and they they played me the demo and I was like, well, shit, I can do that. So I just, you know, I did what needed to be done, but it could have been a complete disaster, you know, but, <clears throat> you know, I, I was confident enough to know that I could pull it off if I had to. So there's a lot of different stuff like that. And same thing really with the Wildwood videos. I mean, the, the Wildwood thing was, you know, so having done the Fender thing for years and, and it really worked out where I would do, you know, I would do X amount of Hal Leonard stuff a year. Um, and the royalties from the books and stuff were, were, were pretty decent, you know, it was a salary's worth of stuff. And, um, and then I would do X amount of stuff for, for Fender, but I was never a Fender employee. I would never even had any kind of written agreement with them. It was just, which, which worked to my benefit for a long time. Uh, I got hooked up with another record company in, in Europe. And so I started doing tours with the band. So in, in the, in the kind of the high point of the Fender years, what I was able to do is I would book a tour in Europe where I was just doing club gigs, but then I would also have Fender and Hal Leonard work together on clinics. So I had a full band that we'd go in and do clinics on all the clinic days. They were covering all the expenses and paying us on top of it. And then I would do all the club gigs with the band and make all that. So it was all, I was in the black from the get, you know what I mean? So I was, I was, it was, it really worked out well. So uh, that worked its way for many, many years. Uh, and it just kept on going. But at one point I was like, you know, it would be nice to have a little bit of security because my kids were getting older and it was, you know, it was, you know, they were going to be going to college in the not too distant future. And, um, so I remember sitting down with one of the Fender guys at, uh, at a breakfast at, at NAM, And I said, Hey, you know, I never really asked you guys for any kind of solidified relationship. He goes, I'm surprised you haven't asked sooner. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, my kids, my kids are getting older and yada, yada, yada. To make a long story short, it never happened. I mean, there were various different things. I mean, they sold the company to other people and it, it just got messy. Uh, but, you know, I, there were very mac various different machinations going on to try to at least have some kind of centralized booking thing for what I was doing for Fender. It just never happened. But at the same token, I still was continuing to do stuff for them all over the world, but I was doing that all by myself. So I had... I had a artist relations guy in the States that I would talk to about doing X amount of stuff in the States. I'm talking to the guys from Fender Europe about doing stuff in their purview, but there were separate distributors were all over the place. I dealt with Australia separately. I would come to Australia every year and do that roadhouse tour where, where we first met. Uh, I would do stuff in Italy with the Italian distributor. Germany was a different thing. So I had all these different people that I would have to kind of deal with as well as like just booking the band, you know, yeah. Yeah. And so it was a lot of different stuff to deal with. And, uh, and it went well for a long time. But what was really interesting was, is at one point, I remember doing a clinic with the full band. So, and at that point I was doing, Roscoe Beck was on bass and Tommy Breckline was on drums. So I basically had Robin Ford's and Eric Johnson's old rhythm section oh, cool. that were my friends that we would go out and do these workshops with. So we yep. would just basically play and then I would talk in between and it was a blast and the money was good. And, it was low stress and all this other kind of stuff. One of them we did was at the store out in Colorado uh, called Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. And I remember the, the Fender rep was really excited. He's like, yeah, you don't understand how much stuff this place, it's like the number one Fender custom shop dealer in the world, you know? And I'm like, really? So they, they didn't even do the clinic at the store. They rented out this really nice facility and we played at this event. And I remember the Fender guy was like, you can't even imagine how much stuff they sold tonight just wow. at this event. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, so I was kind of in the back of my mind. And then I remember Steve 
brought us in the owner of Wildwood brought us over to his house for a nice dinner that his wife made afterwards. And it was just very, you know, I, I had good memory of the whole thing. And then a couple of years later, the fender rep called me up and he said, uh, Hey, remember that store that you did that clinic with a couple of years ago? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, well, Steve's got an idea for doing videos for, um, the website. He said they're, you know, they were one of the first places to do really detailed pictures and all the minutiae of what people want to know online to buy guitars. And the next step that they want to do is they want to have someone play all the different guitars. So Steve's initial thing was, well, it'd be great if, you know, cause he, he did so much business and he ordered so much stuff from, from Gibson, from Fender in their custom shops. I mean, just an incredible amount of stuff that he wanted and, and all the other different brands as well is that he, his, his dream was to have all the different kind of top guys that did stuff for these different companies to come there once a month and shoot videos at this facility that he made. And at the time it was in his basement. He doesn't do it anymore. So I can say it, but at the mm-hmm. time it was top secret. Cause you yep. know, he had four Dumble amps down there in this phalanx of all these cool amps, you know, didn't want anybody knowing where that was, but yeah. at the time it was in his basement. <clears throat> and so he's like, well, what's going to happen is that Fender will pay your expenses and Steve will pay you directly. I'm like, great, no problem. So I remember I went out there and uh, we go downstairs into this this facility. It was beautiful, you know, with all the amps lined up and lights and the cameras and all that kind of stuff. And they, uh, they hand me this Telecaster. And on the screen was just the screen that said the name of the guitar, the weight, the color, and the serial number. And so Steve says to me, he goes, look, just, just play a little bit, play some different styles, play the different, you know, pickup selections, maybe, you know, clean them with a little bit of overdrive, maybe some different styles. And, and then maybe whatever you think about the guitar, you know, it, it should be, you know, three, four or five minutes long. I'm like, okay. So they turn the camera on. I play, I do one video, we get done. Steve doesn't say where he stands up and he walks over me, comes up to me, he goes, can I hire you to do this? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, I will fly you out here every month <clears throat> and pay you to do these videos for me. Uh, I'm like, you mean kind of like a job? And he's like, you can, you can take it whatever you want it. So what was interesting to me at that time is you got to remember, I had been dealing with Fender for like the past year, trying to get them to make any kind of commitment to me other than what we've been doing all along, which was a wink and a nod, which yeah. was getting a little aggravated because there would be stuff like, <clears throat> well, we watch it for two weeks in July. And then mid, mid-June, they'd say, well, it's really more like a weekend. You know, and then you'd be like, okay. You know, so it was, there was a lot of uncertainty. <clears throat> so the fact that this, you know, individual dealer, independent dealer in, you know, Boulder County, Colorado was making me more of a commitment that's than awesome. the biggest guitar manufacturer in the world. Yeah. You know, it was like, this is wild. Yeah. <clears throat> and so what happened was, as I started going out there and doing more of these videos, and Steve and I got along great. It was going along great. It, the videos had an immediate impact. Um, I said, you know, and, and Fender wasn't, you know, they had just sold to somebody else. And I was doing less and less stuff for them, especially in the States. I was still doing a bunch of stuff in Europe for them. Um. At one point, you know, I said to Steve, because I, uh, I was playing, so I really had a hankering to play some Les Pauls again, because as I said, I was a 335 guy for years. Yeah. And I loved the sound of humbuckers, and I had a whole different bag of tricks that I did on that style of guitar. So I said to Steve one day, I was like, you know, if I'd, um, I'd, I'd love to do the, the Gibsons for you. 
and the and the Paul Reed Smiths and so on and so forth. He's like, well, I'd I'd use you a hell of a lot more if you did that. I'd use you a couple more days a month. And um, so I remember getting a hold of the Fender guys and saying, hey, listen, you know, when I do gigs and whatever else and my other videos that I've been doing for Hal Leonard, I use Gibsons as I need to and so on and so forth. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't delineate what I still do for you guys of what I still do for you if I would play these other instruments. So I just want to make you guys aware of this before I start doing it so I don't offend. Yep. And he's like, you know, I, I ran it up the flagpole and everyone's cool with it. And I'm like, okay. So next thing you know, I start doing all these Gibson videos. So it was, I, I'm not 100% sure of the conversations that went on, but I know that a lot of these other retailers, which I had been doing clinics to, with all over the years for Fender, sort of go back to Fender. I was like, why is Wildwood getting Greg to do all this stuff? And then the cat was out of the bag. I had never been an employee of Fender. They had never made any effort to make me exclusive. They had yeah. never, you know, done it, which ended up working out to my advantage because these videos that I've done for Wildwood and all the different stuff that has happened since then um, has been exponentially more important for getting my name out there, oh, for yeah. getting people aware of my playing, yep. uh, you know, and not to mention the fact that I, you know, I make, you know, a hell of a lot more money as well. But it's, it was, and it was an interesting thing. You know, it was, it was a little scary at first, you know, it's like when you're, when you're the guy for the largest guitar company on earth, where do you go? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. It was a little scary. It's like, well, what am I going to do when this this Fender thing dries up, you know? And uh, but at the same, you know, I, again, it kind of took balls to say, well, hey, if they're, you know, I th these other folks are are making the move, and this is this makes a lot more sense. Um, and that's what I ended up doing. So a lot of people are like, well, why did you leave Fender? It's like, <laughs> I didn't leave Fender. You know, every opportunity I tried to come up with, and I had some great ideas for doing different things. And then when I started hooking up with Fishman and we came up with the new pickups, uh, my initial goal was, I was like, I went back to my Fender buddies. like, look, this Tele set is killing. We could do X, Y, and Z. We could do some stuff with Wildwood. We do some custom shop versions. We could do a Baja Tele and pop these pickups in there and it would destroy. And they were like, yeah, we got our own pickups. I'm like, yeah, I know you have your own yeah. pickups. I, yeah. I've played them all. Yeah. But you also use all kinds of Fishman stuff in your other guitars. Yep. You also use Seymour Duncan pickups. It was just really weird. It was just like, you know, there was no effort to to try to do anything. And, we, and I still have a lot of good friends that still work there. But, you know, it just ended up that it made sense to make all the moves that I had done since then. With Reverend, I mean, as you talked to Ken last night. Ken's the greatest. Ken and Penny are the greatest. Joe Naylor makes great stuff. They started doing some videos with me at um, at Wildwood, and we just became friends. So I was just like, you know what? These are great people. The guitars are great. It's a great company. It's a great story, and it just made sense. So people are like, why are you, you know, you're doing, you know, people, you know, will immediately question why you're doing it. Like because they're good people and they're good guitars. And it's a good relationship. And that means more than, you know, uh, you know, a lot of these big corporate, you know, uh, uh, legacy instruments, they're still great people there. They're still making great instruments, but those professional relationships are, are, you know, when they get into that more stratified corporate nature, they're, they're not exactly artist friendly. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see why a, a lot of, uh, artists would leave companies like, like Fender and Gibson. And, and it's been a lot of big names that have had custom shop, not custom shop, their signature models, you know, John Mayer, et cetera who then leave to go to other companies. And I could see why, because the whole corporate thing, you know, they're trying to please shareholders and things like that. Right, and, right, yeah, exactly. The, the, the person, it's not personal. So I could totally see that, man, Wildwood, 
as soon as I mention your name to anybody, the first thing they go is, oh yeah, I've seen, I love his Wildwood video. So that was an awesome thing to, to land in your lap. And it was right it's at the right time by the anybody. Yeah, it's and it's still it continues to be. You know, it's uh, you know I would normally go out there four days a month and shoot between twenty to twenty five videos a day. So we get a lot of work done while I'm out there. And, and did, um, did talking in front of a camera come naturally to you? It did. I don't know why. It was weird. I mean, like I knew as soon as I started to do the um, well, the clinic thing was a natural thing. Yep. So I started doing the clinics. And I had no problem talking to people and. And I became more and more comfortable doing my my usual humorous stuff because I've been doing, you know, I've been a uh, <laughs> a menace to teachers <laughs> my entire life because I was always a class clown and I had no problem getting up in front of people and being a maniac. So, um, and then I discovered I had this ability to be able to share information in a way that wasn't too droll or dogmatic or, you know, tedious. And, yeah. um, and so that just... You know, it just only, and I started adding more and more of the humor stuff started to develop yeah. uh, as I went along. So, um, and do you have yeah. like notes um, to make sure that you get all the points in that you need to do? Have you got just at the side there little, little bullet points or something? Because it's quite obviously well, not scripted. Well, to this day, I mean, like when I would go out there, it was just the name of the guitar. Uh, it depends. If we're doing like an overview video, they'll make a little cheat sheet for me with specifics. Yep. But when we're just doing the serial number guitars, which is really was the bread and butter for the longest time, uh, was just me doing the individual because they order so many of these, you know, Wildwood 10s and Wildwood spec guitars. <clears throat> People just want to hear the differences in the individual guitars. So then it's just the name of the guitar, the color of the guitar, the weight and the serial number. And so the rest is all I just wing. That's a great concept. Now, Ken brought that up, that you do the serial number thing so people can actually buy that guitar. I own yeah. that serial Yeah. That is a very and it's, and it's, it's And it's crazy. I mean, I get – in the amount of people that have seen these videos over the years, it's, it's just so – I mean, it's gratifying as hell. I mean, you know, when you have <laughs> – I remember the first time I met Michael Landau. You know, he's like – you know, here, Michael Landau's – Mike Lando is like Jeff Beck in 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 the guitars, the guitar players that no matter what style you're in, everyone says they're the man. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And um, the first time I met him, it was like, you know, in Wayne Krantz, you know, it's like, oh, I saw your video on this, and that. I'm like, what? You know, it's just, it's just incomprehensible that these guys are watching the video. And, you know, and, and it continues to be that I'll encounter these different, I mean, uh, Devin Allman, you know, Greg Allman's son of the Allman Betts band. Got a hold of me the other day. I was like, hey, you know, do you remember this guitar? I love this video. And, da -da -da -da, and I'm thinking about getting it's just, it's just weird. You know, it's it's great. It's it, but it's, you know, definitely not what I would have imagined. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so it's, it's during the pandemic, it's been weird. Obviously, I haven't been going out there because, you know, Steve, Steve hasn't even opened up to the public yet. So oh, really? since since March of 2020. So he's still doing a brisk online business. Um, but you know, he's very, very conscientious of not wanting his employees exposed to the virus and so on and so forth. Yep. So they've been sending me guitar. So I've been doing videos from the house. Uh, obviously he can't send me, you know, 75 guitars a month to do. Yep. Uh, so he sends me what he can. I do two live streams a week for him. I've been doing a podcast that's both Fishman and, uh, Wildwood 
uh, sponsored, and that's been going very, very well. I also do additional video content where I'll do serial number videos or overview videos. Then we do these things called Wildwood 30s and whatnot. And so, and I also do two things for Fishman a week from the Orange Room here. Yep. Uh, and then we've been doing um, various different band live streams. So, um, yeah, it continues to go great. It's 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 crazy. I mean, the whole awesome. thing is it's bizarre how many people tune in to these online things. But, you know, hey, that's the world we're in. It's a new world. I remember talking to Larry Mitchell uh, not that long ago, and he was saying, you know, it, it's changed from the days of playing in clubs every night to basically producing your own TV show now. You've got to be a TV producer of sorts. Right. To be known right. as a guitar player now, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's it's a strange thing because there's there's a lot of especially the younger dudes are way better at you know doing you know putting together videos that are uh, you know as far as like editing stuff and so on and so forth. At least I got to the point now where we have multiple camera shots. The cameras are fantastic. The audio is fantastic. You know, and, and I've had people help me with all that stuff because that's as I was saying earlier. Technically, you know, I, I've always steered away from being you know, real, um, you know, studio savvy and all that kind of stuff. But we've gotten to the point now where, you know, our live streams, they look and they sound great. We got the lighting right. You know, we're going through all these different systems. And I got a guy who actually beams in on my computer who's able to run sound and lights when I just want to play and awesome. uh, make awesome. sure the sound is good. And so, yeah, it's been great. You know, I, 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 you know, as much as, you know, thank God none of us have gotten sick and, um, and uh, been able to maintain you know, uh, a healthy and happy household during the pandemic. Nice. So. Nice. Yeah. I was, I was wondering whether you had a team working on doing something like, if, like that. If you're doing it so often um, and it sounds like you do. What, yeah. My buddy, Ryan Fitzsimmons from Fishman has really, really been the savior. You know, he's been, uh, he's been absolutely fantastic. I mean, we started off the pandemic with a laptop and this, USB microphone. Fishman, because yep. we were planning on doing more online stuff anyway with Fishman prior to the pandemic. So that just forced the hand, forced the issue. Yep. So we started off with that. And then my son, who was quarantined with me, who plays drums, is like, Dad, we, we need to up the game because I'm going to buy a computer. I'll get an interface. And so then, at least when my son and I would do it, we had this interface and, the, you know, we were going through his Mac. And, and then at some point, you know, a guy who I knew was a Tascam guy is like, hey, we'd love to have some placement in your videos. We're like, well, if you send us one of those Tascam Model 24s, we ended up using that as the interface. So then as the as the pandemic kind of waned a little bit in the early, you know, in the early going, um, we had um, our keyboard player come in uh, for our B3 guy, Toby Lee Marshall. And then we were able to put everything through uh the Tascam into logic and then out through restream to the to the masses and then my buddy ryan would beam into our computer and make sure it sounded good and then we just kept on going from there instead of buying better cameras getting better lighting uh and so on and so forth so now we've gotten to the point where we you know when we go live you know it's it's sounding and looking pretty good cool and you're using restream we are yeah 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 so i always knew them as I use different software and then I can transmit to them, which then puts it out to various platforms. But right. I was aware that they've come out with their own all-in-one. I, I must give it a try. Well, what we've been doing is, so so we go into the Tascam as our interface. It goes into uh, uh, Logic. And then we use Loopback out of Logic into OBS and then OBS to Restream and that goes out to the world. Okay, so OBS is sort of handling 
the marriage of the audio and the yeah, video. Yeah, yeah, cool, awesome. Greg, I got a, a question for you, which, um, if you don't mind, do you mind logging out and logging back in again? There's a slight ring modulation kind of sound happening on your voice, which I think will probably go if you log out and log back in. No but, problem. Um, what the fuck is gristle? <laughs> ah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about the gristle. <laughs> okay, you got it. Okay. So, folks, while Greg logs back out and back in, that'll take all of 10 seconds to do. Um, feel free to leave any questions that you might have in the chat room because I've got it there in front of me. I can mark some of them. Uh, and Greg will be back right now just like this. Ready? One, two, three. Ding dong. Just like oh, that. How's Whoa. that? Better? I, oh, time will tell. <laughs> it wasn't that bad, but it wasn't worth interrupting you talking, but it just happens now and then. It's just a slight little droid. Maybe you are an android. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. So you're so, asking about what gristle? Gristle, is. yeah. I see that the gristle reference pops up quite a bit, and I have no it's, idea where this it, comes from. It's just stupidity, really. I mean, we uh, years ago, um, when I was you know playing clubs and raising hell all the time locally, uh, I would come up with various different. I had my main band that I would play with. You know, it was, was Greg Cock and the Tone Controls, and then uh, there was a cool blues club in town called the Up and Under. We used to have fun playing at, so I would. I tried little house gigs. So I, my goal was, you know, I'd, I'd play at that time five, six, seven nights a week if I could, uh, which took its toll. It didn't I didn't do it for all that long. But I was always looking for a little house gig. So the, we had a house gig on a Thursday night uh, at this club. And um, it, typically what would happen is, you know, we get done playing and we had a little bit of a, you know, we were a little croisoned from our beverage consumption. And we'd go out and we'd go have late night cuisine someplace. So we were eating at this Ma Fisher's bar at, or Ma Fisher's restaurant in the east side of Milwaukee after we got done playing. And somehow a food fight broke out, as I recall, and projectiles were flinging. And that, and somehow we ended up outside and I remember seeing a piece of gristle from the steak hanging from the marquee of the, uh, of the Oriental Theater next door. And I just remember in my Croizen state saying, uh, pound the gristle, just screaming, pound the gristle. And so that became kind of a battle cry for us. So the next week when we're playing, we're like, whenever we had to hit the stage, I go, it's time to pound the gristle. And, um, and then that just became a catch-all for anything you could possibly imagine, sorted and otherwise. And uh, so then I started, re I'd, I'd refer to it like a little distortion on the guitar. I give me a little bit more of that gristle. Yeah, and uh, and then I became the gristle man, and then it became you know double the gristle. I'm running my records and and uh, radio free. It just became my thing, and yep. uh, for lack of a better term, so and a cool stupidity. thing it is a very cool. Thing. It's just kind of kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm waiting to get a thing from the people in throbbing gristle one of these days saying cease and desist. Oh, but it hasn't. Out. But it has. But it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so, Greg, gear wise, man. You were saying back then that, was it the Cyber, what was the Fender one you said? You Cyber had? Twin. No, yes. Cyber Twin, yeah. Um, in hindsight, did you know at the time, did you think, hey, this thing sounds great, it's indistinguishable, or did you have in the back of your mind, uh, it ain't no true, bam? Well, that's, that's an interesting story. So for the time I was using it, I was sold. I was sold that it was something that solved a lot of problems. Because, I mean, I, I did some interesting things with it. I mean, 
not all the amps, the, what, what, the only problem is that they weren't quantized right. So they had amps in their amp collection of which they were like 25 classic Fender amps and some Marshalls. And that, of course they couldn't call them Marshalls and Voxes. They couldn't call them Voxes. Um, but there were a few different amps that the volumes were right where you could get them to, to scream pretty good and that you could marry them together. So I found a tweed basement that sounded good. So what you could do with that amp is you could do stuff like, well, I'm going to use a tweed basemen, but I'm going to use a blackface reverb, which you could do. And then I want to use uh, the tape echo thing on the thing was fucking awesome. It sounded great. And then they had like a vibratone setting that was great and you could control the rate. And so you could do this really cool shit. So I would use uh, the basemen setting and there was a uh, kind of a JTM 45 setting that was killer. And I used that, and um, ironically, the tweed, the, the the twin setting wasn't loud enough to oh, to, nice. to do battle with these other things. So I had the stuff that I would do. So I would use primarily the basement for my cleans and slightly overdriven, uh, and then you could marry like a tube screamer with that. So you could do a bunch of cool shit, and then you'd go out of the back of it, and 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 I would do recordings with the same people. You know, I'd come back home to Milwaukee where, you know, the older guys in town be like, "Oh, that's a toy." Yeah. And then I would I, I would play a I'd play a um, uh, a recording from man those tones are awesome what are you using there I'm like I'm using the fucking Cyber Twin there bro <laughs> and so so there was there was a lot of different stuff where I would use it where there was there was this pushback from the old school guys but when I would do the demos of it they were so convincing I mean my buddy Richie Fliegler to this day he's like you can take as much credit as you want because we saw. They were able to track where I was doing clinics and how many of those things they sold. He goes, it was millions of dollars worth of, <laughs> worth of Cyber Twins wow. were sold because I was I was just having fun. Yep. But to your point, one day I said, and I was using it for gigs. I'd use it for gigs and it made life easy because I'm always about, you know, if I can just do a cord into an amp and it had that foot pedal that was for it, that I could switch the channels and control the settings and all that kind of shit. I was happy as a pig and squalor until one day. I was at this club. I can't remember where I was, but I brought my Super Reverb out. and It was sitting right next to it. And I plugged into the Super Reverb and it just, it was so open sounding and glassy and delightful. And as soon as I heard that, it ruined it for me. And, uh, and I just ended up, and then by that time, what had happened too is that Fender had kind of moved. I mean, they were, it was a weird thing. I mean, the technology was getting so good. So they came out with a Cyber Twin SE where they kicked the can down a little bit more down the road. And then they just chickened out and they just went, they're like, oh, let's just make this kind of a lower level kind of, you know, you know, um, that's when the G deck came out. They made it more about, you know, the bedroom guitar player and not really an, imp an implement for professionals per se. Um, and then they started pushing me towards back to really expensive tube amps again. So remember the Vibroverb had just yep. come out, the kind of yep. the, the Cesar Diaz, you know, Steve Ray Vaughan, like single 15 Vibroverb. So then I started doing gigs with a Vibroverb and a Super Reverb again. And then they came out with like the Tweed Twin. So I started pivoting more towards these tube amps because that's the stuff that they were promoting at the time. And I certainly didn't have any problem playing that stuff. So they kind of veered away from that stuff. And, and as a result, I did too. Um, and then I, you know, I think what happened was is that at some point I used, they came out with a, um, they came out with a supersonic amp, the supersonic 60. And it was a, it was a single 12 amp. 
but I would use that single 12 amp with a 212 extension cabinet. So I had three 12s and that amp sounded awesome. And I ended up using that on a record I did called uh, Live on the Radio, um, which had Roscoe back on bass, uh, three different drummers, of you know, Brandon Temple from Austin, um, uh, Tommy Breckline, my local guy, Johnny Clark was a great drummer. And then Malford Milligan was singing. It was basically, we kept on going into this, this radio station locally that was the college radio station. We'd perform live on the radio and to promote these gigs. I'd, I'd bring these guys in. We'd always have a good gravy kind of uh, anchor gig. And then I'd book a couple other club gigs around it. Everyone made good dough. It was all good. But one of the things that we'd do is I was a, a regular on this morning show. Uh, I would do that. And then we'd also play on this college radio station to promote the gig. And every time we got done playing on the radio to promote the gig, Billy Cicerelli, the engineer, would come out and go, give us all CDs. He's like, here's, here's your CD of the gig. Of I said, of, we, of what we just played? And like, yeah. And then we'd put it in on the way home. We're like, we could release this shit. It sounds wow. awesome. Yeah. And so, so that's what we ended up doing after we were on there like three or four times. We had enough takes that were decent that we put out this record. And I used that amp on everything except for one tune was a super reverb. But everything else was that supersonic. And to this day, people are like, that's my favorite tone of all time. And it was just basically that supersonic uh, single 12 with the 212 extension cabinet uh, mic'd up in a really live room. And it sounded sounded killer. So then I started getting used to the idea again of, of like a two channel amp because prior to the super prior to the to the uh, Cyber Twin, and then afterwards, I was always kind of a set the amp clean with just a little bit of hair on it, and then use pedals above it. Yep. Uh, and then I got then the Supersonic twisted me to the idea of this two channel amp. Years ago, I had a a, a Jim Kelly amp. Uh, that was a two-channel amp that I used that I loved, but I blew it up at one point, and after I after I came back, it never sounded right again. So then I veered more to like, you know, a tube screamer or whatever or whatever variant. Yeah. In, I'm sorry, probably shouldn't use that word. Uh, in front of like <laughs> a you know a clean platform amp, you know, a pedal platform, uh, and that's really what led to the caulk amplifier thing later on, was that I knew it could be done. You yeah. know, you could have a. And that's why I ended up veering towards that. Cool, cool. In, in now, later you, you years. You mentioned a couple of times, um, you said just then having the amp set with just a bit of hair around it, but then very early on the piece, you said that you didn't like using a compressor. And i got to say, I'm, I'm the same. I would much prefer to set the amplifier so that it's on the verge of breakup and you know, I'm getting all those subtleties when I'm playing quiet, but when I hit it hard, I'm not taking out the front row with this right. headroom, this boom. And right, I've got right. an, an interim amp at the moment. My my favorite amp is the Friedman Small Box. Um, absolutely, oh, love it. I, I yeah. love those too. I got I've got a, a custom one coming from Dave soon, um, but I've got a little JJ Junior, Double J Junior. In the meantime, I love the dirty channel, the clean channel, pedal platform. That I, I think that's manufacturer code for. Nah, it is what it is. Throw what you need to throw in front of it to make it sound good. Because right. let me tell you, you're hurting people with that channel. And I've got a, a big show coming up soon, um, backing a whole bunch of uh, pop and rock icons from the '80s here in, in in Australia. And those guys need it to sound like the record. And as is, man, that clean channel. But um, so I'm going to go for modeling and a helix for my pushed cleans and right. And then, but lean on the, the the dirty channel on the Double J Junior. Oh, just the clarity in that is, is is amazing. So I totally hear you when it comes to 
just having a bit of hair around it because right. some people are into that. No, I've got this compressor. I've got that compressor. And I'm thinking, I can totally fucking hear it. I can hear the compressor working. I don't want to hear it. Right. I mean, it's interesting because I, you know, since I started hooking up with Fishman, when I do my acoustic stuff, I'll have a little bit of compression on it. But every time I describe it, it's like, it's not, not so much that you can hear it, but I can feel it. You yeah. know, that's 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 the only kind of compression I like to use, where it's yeah. more of a, it, especially when you're playing acoustic, obviously to have a little assistance so that you're not, you know, bleeding when you're trying to do various different things is always, <laughs> is always good. Yeah. <laughs> so Fishman, uh, Fluence pickups, is that, that's your choice, is it? The Fluence? That, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you say earlier you had something to do with the development of that? I did, yeah. So yeah. Um, early on, uh, I remember my buddy Richie Fliegler, who was the vice president of marketing for Fender for years. And so I worked with him a bunch back in the Fender days, and he knew uh, he knew my ability to uh, translate, you know, uh, musicianship with this idea of you know making things palatable to people so they get interested but not in a droll way right so he knew what i he knew my skill set so when when larry fishman got this technology to do these electric guitar pickups something he never wanted to do in the past because he figured it all been done so they got this new technology so i remember i was headed over to europe with my band to do a tour and I'm at the Detroit airport waiting to get on this plane and my phone rings and it's Richie. And I'm like, Richie, what's going on? He's like, Hey, I got a, I, I got an idea. I'm like, okay. He's like, I'm working with Larry Fisher. I'm like, oh, yeah, Larry, I've met Larry a few times, you know, sterling reputation in the industry. Everyone loves Larry, good, straight shooter, brilliant dude, you know, cool cat. And, um, and he's like, I'm working with Larry. He's got this technology for these electric guitar pickups. And we're developing. And the first person I thought of was you. And I was like, and it was kind of funny because at the time, I was going out to Wildwood six days a month. Okay. So plus I was still doing a bit of Fender stuff and touring with the band. And I got four kids. So the idea of, you know, doing something else really didn't appeal to me at the time. Um, but I said, you know, I remember I said to him, I go, I was like, Richie, pickups, I, to be honest, I really just don't give a shit. I said, you know, and he's like, well, hear me out. And so he starts describing what they do. And then it started to, to sink in that, because I remember years ago when I was at the height of the Fender stuff, they had, uh, they bought, they brought Bill Lawrence on board and he was making pickups for Fender and they were going to do a signature pickup for me, you know? Um, and that was like, well, what do you want? And I was like, well, I want a pickup that looks like a like a single coil pickup, sounds like a single coil pickup, uh, is noiseless, and also has the ability to have some kind of an incremental boost or change of tone. Um, and so that turns out that that's exactly what these were going to do with the technology Ooh. that was available to them. So um, we made an agreement to that I would at least go out there and hear them out. Right. So I did my tour, went to Europe. I remember when I was in Europe, I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement so that they could tell me what this thing was all about, you know, other than kind of, in, you know, broad strokes. So they gave me the specifics. And so when I returned from Europe, you know, I got to be home for like a week or so. And then I found myself out in Boston to hear these pickups. And I still wasn't 100 percent sure. Uh, but I thought, I, you know, Richie, I trusted Richie. I knew Larry was a good shit. So I knew it was all going to be you know, above board as far as that was concerned. So I remember I went out there and we started voicing the Strat pickups. 
while we were out there. And at first I was like, eh, eh. But what, what convinced me was they had this shuttle guitar, right? So they had a Strat that you were able to pop out the pickups, the analog, or I should not say analog, but the, the conventional single coil pickups that we were going for. Yep. They were able to pop those out, <clears throat> pop the Fishman versions in, and then in real time make the adjustments. Yep. And so by the time we were done going back and forth, I liked the Fishman pickups better than the pickups oh, cool. we were trying yep. to go for, right? Yep. And so I was hyped. And then we did a second voice so we could have like the original voice and then I could pop up on a on a, on a a uh, volume control or a tone control. And it got the second voice that was just a little hotter, you know, that sounded a little bit more girthsome. And so I was having a blast just with the sound of it, right? So I remember at one point um, I was having fun. I was just kind of plugged into a deluxe reverb. And so I just crank up the deluxe and I would basically with the volume control and with this ability to make the amp sound fatter with this control, I was doing all these different styles and different sounds and yada, yada. I'd, I'd do some of my own stuff. I would might do a little Hendrix thing or Clapton thing or whatever the case may be, a little Steve Ray Vaughan, whatever. And um, a little Dire Straits, whatever. So I get done doing kind of this. And all of a sudden Larry goes, do me a favor. He goes, my my sales force has no idea what we're working on here. Do you mind if I bring them in and you just kind of futz around and play a little bit? So it's not dissimilar to what happened with the Cyber Twin, right? So yeah. I'm I'm in this room. He brings in the sales force and I start playing and I start going, hey, this is really cool, man. You could do this and this and this. And we did this thing where we did, you know, we went back and forth and we got these sounds and I'm playing. And I get done doing this thing. Larry's like, thanks a lot. So I go in the other room and Richie Fliegler comes out to me and he's like, hey, they want to hire you. I go, what do you mean they want to hire me? And uh, they're like, they they want to they want to bring you on board to you know be their guy that kind of champions this stuff for them. I was like, yeah, well, I I got the Wildwood thing, I got my own stuff, and he's like, I'm pretty sure you could ask for whatever you want, and they're gonna they're gonna make sure it was you know that you're taken care of. So I'll never forget, we got together and talked for like ten minutes about a mutually beneficial situation. And uh, which was funny because it was almost the exact thing that I asked Fender for. And here, and again, I was just amazed that within 10 minutes, it was done. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, you know, I wanted to have some signature products. We've developed those. They've been highly successful. You know, I did my Telecaster set, the Gristletone Telecaster set. Uh, we just came out with the P90s last year, which they can't make enough of. Uh, well, I mean, they're finally catching up, but you know, they were, they were very well received <clears throat> and it just continues to be a great relationship, you know? And again, it was amazing to me that, you know, I mean, Fishman's a big, you know, a big dog in the music industry, but they're not a Fender, you know what I mean? Yeah. Fender's huge, you know? Yep. Um, and so to me, it was just so interesting that, you know, it just proves that, you know, having relationships with people whose, whose names are still on the building, you know what I mean? Yeah, is a big is a big deal, you know, because yeah. I have that personal relationship, um, and to be talking with the people that actually had the vision to start the business to begin with, it's a whole different dynamic. So it's just it's worked out fantastic. Awesome. So now, that's so that's how that all started. Cool, cool. Now you mentioned that um, there was dual voicings on the pickups. Yes. Is that something <clears throat> you've got wired into your um, your? signature reverend guitar do you have like a switch or a pull pot or something that's correct so, so we when we were doing the uh when we we're doing the tellies <clears throat> well the, the gristle master I, I wanted a slightly larger bodied t-style guitar um and so 
initially what happened was I just used, you know, I was doing <laughs> the whole reverend thing started other than the fact that, that, um, uh, Ken and I were buddies, right? And 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 Joe Naylor, I'd known those guys for years. We'd always hang out at all the Nam shows, you know, whether it be in Nashville or or, or at uh, Nam out in California. <clears throat> we just got along great, and I and they were they'd always had these cool parties, right? They'd have these cool parties where they'd had their endorsees play at, and I was like, you know, I never get to play at any cool parties, Ken. I want to play at your parties. Like, well, you'd have to use a Reverend guitar. And I'm like, well would you be okay if we threw some Fishman pickups in one of those? Then we could, you know, make it make sense. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I said, well, just set me up with one of those um, Pete Andersons and we'll we'll pop my pickups in there. So that was how it first started. Fishman sent a copy, a set of my pickups to Reverend and he popped them in. And also a set of the humbuckers. Because at that time we had voiced the Strat pickups. We had just got the, my Tele pickups out and the humbuckers. So I had a Pete Anderson East Sider. T with my pickups in it, and also a Pete Anderson PA1, the hollow body with the Bigsby with the humbuckers in it. And I got those guitars. I just loved them. They were great. They sounded great. They looked great. They were cool as hell. And um, so I was having fun playing them. So I used them at this party that we did for um, uh, the trio with my son and with Toby on organ. We played with uh, Pete Anderson and with uh, Rick Vito at this party in Nashville, and it was a blast. And I remember Larry Fishman and the Fishman gang came out, and you know it just was a really good fit. And so uh, Ken asked me to come to Toledo to do some videos, much like we had done out in, in at Wildwood, but to just kind of do a general overview of all the different reverend stuff. Because Ken and I, people loved those videos we did so much at at Wildwood, he's like, man, you know, Steve's cool with it. So why don't you come on out and we'll do it. So we were there. I went out to Toledo. We did a bunch of videos and he had said to me at one point, he's like, look, you know, no pressure because we're buddies. But if you ever want to do a signature guitar, Joe Naylor and I would love to talk to you about it. And so I had this idea for a slightly larger body guitar because I'm, I'm a big dude. I, I had talked about it with Fender years ago. And like many of the things I recommended, <laughs> they weren't interested. So <laughs> I said, you know, I want this guitar it's slightly larger, you know, not so large that it won't fit in a regular case, but just something to give the visual appearance of not looking like a ukulele on a guy who's six, seven. Right. Yeah. So like, no problem. And uh, so we, and then we had some ideas for a middle raise section and we were the little pickups around and all that kind of stuff. So we ended up and, and they were cool with putting the Fishman pickups in their guitars. So that's how it all kind of started it was very successful from the get-go i mean the pickups have been you know have been very very successful and the guitar now has been successful and now and then after the fact i was like well i'd like a gibson scale with a set neck with these p90s so we kind of had the idea of doing voicing new p90s with the fishman at the same time as the guitar was coming out so we were able to get the guitar out and the pickups around the same it, it was a little hairy because of covid supply chain issues and so on and so forth but we managed to get the pickups out and the guitar out, and that's been, and both have been doing very, very well. So, awesome. Good. Now, you mentioned that the pickups around uh, on the telly, uh, the telly on your signature guitar, uh, is right. that to try and um, get more the sound of a telly? Are you finding that affects the tone as opposed to being screwed directly into the body? Well, the pickups around is just it's just simply uh, cosmetic. Initially, yeah. what what I had in mind was is I wanted it to be a metal surround. So it almost looked like kind of a Firebird vibe, right? Because yeah, yeah. that raised section gives it kind of a Firebird thing. Um, and so I wanted a, a metal surround. And so that was what the prototype was. They sent me the prototype uh, with the Fishman pickups in with the metal surround. And it looked 
awesome. And I started playing it and I was like, that neck pickup's not right. It doesn't sound right. And um, I, I called up Ken. I was like, something's weird, man. You know, it's it's like the, the neck pickup's just, it's just not as direct sounding. It's not, it doesn't sound like it sounds in my other guitars. And so I, he's like, you need to talk to Joe Naylor. So I'm talking to Joe and I made a little video for him. I'm like, listen, here's a guitar that I have. You know, the pickups are the same heights. You know, on this guitar, this regular telly, it sounds like this. I think I did it with the Pete Anderson. And then here's what it sounds like on this. He's like, man, that's weird. I'm like, yeah. So he started messing around. And what we we figured out was whatever metal material he was using as a surround for the pickup was messing with the sound, with yeah. the, the Fluence technology. There was something with the uh, impedance or something was going on. So he gets back to me. He's like, look. I took out the metal and I put a plastic surround and it sounds fine because I definitely hear the difference. So we could either mess around for the next several months trying to find the right metal material that's not going to mess with the fluence pickups, or we could just go with the the plastic surround. He goes, which I think it looks even cooler. And I was like, let's go with the plastic. I mean, it looks different. It almost yeah. gives it kind of almost like a burns kind of a vibe, you know? Yeah. It looks different in kind of art deco. We saw we went with the the plastic surround and and of all of the, the different things, most people categorically love the guitar and they think it's cool. Every now and again, I'll get someone going, "I love the guitar, but I don't like that plastic surround. That's stupid." And then I always respond with, "Well, I'll tell you what. When you get your signature guitar, you don't have to have it." And so, <laughs> good answer, good answer. Oh, we've gone from there. Yeah, yeah. Now you said before that when you were abing uh, back and forth between the, the Fluence pickups and the original strap pickups that you ended up liking the fluence more what right. was it what was it about that that grabbed you was it was it clarity was it what what was the deciding factor well it was it was clarity and it was especially with the strat pickups when we i mean it with the same thing with the telly when we when we got to the telly stuff it was like it's like they just sounded more ballsy uh more real and of course they didn't have the noise but there wasn't any harshness we were able to get rid of the kind of the you know what was interesting is like initially we were messing with the strat pickups and i and i always use you know visual things because i don't I, I don't talk frequencies you know when they start getting real mumbo jumbo we Everyone that's, go, that's really good at this always talks visually i always point that out being mixing guitar tones yeah it's a common right thing. so so what was happening is, is when we were messing with the Fluence pickups, initially there was this thing happening. I was like, when you hear the, the regular single coil pickups, there's all of this extra information around the note. There's all of this, you know, uh, flares of tone and bits. And then when you hear the Fluence, those bits are gone. I go, we need to have those bits in there, right? Yep. So then they did something where they, there was something with what they were doing to get rid of the noise that was causing the problem. So when they took this thing off, I'm like, there it is. And what was happening was, is they returned the bits, but they got rid of the nasty bits, yep. right? So there was, there was a, uh, there was a blizzard of nails that sometimes happens with regular single coil pickups, right? That we were able to mitigate. So we got the sweetness and the clarity of the single coils, but we got rid of the harshness. But not in a way that stack pickups do, because I there's a stack thing that happens, and that was what I was hearing <clears throat> initially. So we were able to get rid of it, and we really got rid of it with the um, when we were doing my tally pickups. We we had learned some things. I still love the strat pickups, and I use them on my strats. 
Uh, but we hit it out of the park with the with the tally pickups in a way that, man, they just they just sound killer. And you know, only people who are disturbed have a problem. I mean, I mean, everyone has taste, but I mean, there's so many different guys that I know that are tally guys that are you know well known producers, well known guitar session guys that play those pickups. I'm like these things sound killer. And every now and again, you'll get the the stalwart. Uh, you know, traditionalist, and we're like, oh, it's this or it's that, you know. And I'm like, okay, well, then you don't have to use them. But yeah. for me, I mean, I have a 53 telly, and the 53 telly sounds unbelievable. <clears throat> but it howls like a banshee if you add any heat to it, you know. The neck pickup is microphonic as hell, but it sounds so great clean that I don't want to mess with it. So that guitar is as it is, but when I go out and gig or do sessions or do my music, and I need to get a, a telly that can cover all the bases. I'm using my signature pickups. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, 50, 53 that. telly. I had a 52 yeah. telly here for, for a, a few days. Um, and oh my God. First things first, it was light. I couldn't believe yes, how it's light, very light. I was. So your 53 is light? Yes. Yeah. I Absolutely. just, before we, we, uh, we connected earlier today, um, I was watching a, a rig rundown with. Um, Derek Trucks, and he was saying yes. about that most of the time when he picks up a light guitar, he knows straight away it's going to be a good one. And yet, because right. there's always this myth, people want a heavy Gibson for some reason. And I yeah, was, that's weird. It's always always been light guitars. Yeah, for me. yeah, yeah. And he, and he said it in this thing whether the the wood has been dried out a, a bit more or whatever it is. But right. this fifty two Telly was so light. So resonant, unplugged. And I did a comparison video between it, my friend Louis' um, Mexican 52 reissue, and a USA 52 reissue. And i got to say that the USA, USA was nothing like the original. Um, right. Even down to the way it was sanded, the, the original 52 was a lot squarer on the edges. Um, but that that sound you know was just yeah they're way darker than you think yeah. everyone's like oh telly's ice picks like it's way darker yeah yeah and, so you've had the 53 then, for a while i've uh, you know not a, a long maybe six years now i've had it yeah something like that i actually got it at wildwood <clears throat> i was out there and um a guy came in who was a friend of steve's whose brother had passed away who was a collector of all kinds of different stuff he collected Various different things. One of the things he collected was guitars, and that and he had a '54 Strat, and he had the the '53 Tele. And at first, I was like, "Yeah, you know, I need because I, I love the Wildwood 10 guitars because they have the 10 inch radius, the 6105 frets." So I thought I was kind of past the vintage thing. I like I like a modified, you know, er, more ergonomically friendly vintage guitar. Um. And so I, you know, I was like, eh, that's a lot of money. And even though it was, it was a player's piece, I mean, it was a, it was a spray over and, you know, the pickups are original, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a little hole underneath the pick guard for whatever reason. Um, and so, you know, I, it was player priced, so it wasn't horribly expensive as blackguards are these days are ridiculous. Um, but what happened for me is I went back home and uh, a buddy of mine, bought a 59 strat that was all original and he's not much of a player he's just kind of collective he actually deals he's my cat dealer is who we <laughs> bought our, our bengal cats from and uh he's like hey you know what i bought this old strat he goes you know i'm i'd love for you to just take it and play it he goes i don't you know i've got an insured 
just take it and play it. And I'm like, great. So, and, I, and it had the smaller frets on it. So uh, I, I got that guitar and I realized in short order that I had, you know, I'd forgotten like different vibratos and stuff. I always did different because I, my 68 telly back in the day, that's just, I just reverted back to that mindset. And I realized that there's ways that I play on those old radiuses and frets that I don't, that's easier to do actually than some of my <clears throat> more modern guitars as far as radiance and frets are concerned. So immediately in my back of my mind is like, I bet that tally is going to work for me now. So I went back and I started playing that tally. I was like, no, I need to get this. So Steve was cool. I did an incremental payment plan on it and, you know, paid it off pretty, pretty quick. But, uh, uh, that was the, you know, the first kind of high dollar vintage guitar. I mean, I had a 63 Strat for a while, but that was a, that was a refin and the headstock had been broken. So it was not a horribly pricey guitar either. Uh, definitely the, the, you know, the most expensive guitar I had up to that point. But, uh, once I got that tally, man, it's like, I'll, I'll have this guitar to the end. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Greg, I, before I let you go, I just want to ask you about your signature amplifier. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? And tell us a bit about the amp. Well, it's an, a, kind of an interesting story. As stories go, I was at uh, Music Messe in Germany at Frankfurt. And I had been there countless times doing stuff for Fender over the years. I always had a blast. And this one particular year, I was going there only for Fishman. You know, usually I would go there and do Fender stuff and do Fishman and Fender. But this time I was going and I wasn't doing anything for uh, Fender per se. I was just doing a Fishman. And right across from the Fishman booth was Cock Amplifiers. Same last name. And I'd known about the amps for a while. I remember I was, uh, and they, they had a great reputation. And I remember I was in Italy someplace doing something where they had a caulk amplifier and I played it and I loved it because it kind of reminded me functionality wise of, of the supersonic. There were ways that you could, you know, have a clean sound, clean sound boost, lead sound, lead sound boost, another lead sound on top of that, boost on top of that, where you could dial it in so that you could really make a two channel amp work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I'm at the show and all of a sudden Dolph Cock and his wife come over, Conchita. And she and they go, we're big fans of yours. You know, we bought some, we saw you play here a couple of years ago at the Fender booth, and we bought some of your CDs. And I go, that's so funny because I played one of your amps and I really liked it. Wouldn't it be funny if we worked together because I have your same last name? Yeah. And so um, they let me use a twin tone three combo, single twelve combo at the show, and it sounded freaking awesome. I remember Larry Fishman coming over? He's like, "What the hell is that amp?" I go. That sounds great, and check out the name. And so I remember I did a I did a picture of me just kind of leaning against this tower of caulk amplifiers, and I posted it on Facebook or whatever. People were losing their minds, like you have your own amps. I'm like, uh, you know, it's kind of like <laughs> no, but yes. And so we started talking, and so they sent me one of the amps home, and I that was my main amp. And then I did a tour of Europe shortly thereafter, and I used. Um, the twin tone three amp and an extension cabinet. And I loved it. So we started talking about doing a signature amp. And I said, listen, I love the functionality of the twin tone three. I love the sound of it. I said, but I'd like a little bit more vivid reverb, controllable reverb. So we started talking about a reverb with three controls, like the old tank reverb. I said, I really love harmonic vibrato. If we could do harmonic vibrato, that would fucking rule. And they're like, okay, well, we'll work on it. And then I said, I'd love the clean sound. I love to be able to, 
boost the clean sound a little bit, but I'd like the ability to just grunge it up a little bit. And they're like, well, we got this OTS circuit where you, you know, it's a half watt power amp tube that you can overdrive and you can add that to either channel. Cool. So, so I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. I said, I love tens. I love, I'm, I'm a bit, you know, cause I love super reverbs and I love Vibroluxes cause I use Vibroluxes for years. <clears throat> and, um, uh, I'm like, okay, tens, really? I'm like, yeah, tens, trust me. So they made this, and I said, and I want I want Sonic Blue um, uh, a Tolex. I'm like, Sonic Blue? I'm like, trust me. <laughs> so they made me this amp. And, the, and then when we were talking about it, they're like, well, what should we call this amp? And I said, well, we have the same last name. Let's just call it The Greg because it'll be The Greg Cock Amp. They're like, okay. So they made me this amp, and I got it right before a tour uh, over there, club tour, and I loved it from the get-go. From the from the moment I played it, I knew. The only thing we adjusted a little bit was we did a slight tweak to the harmonic vibrato, and we did a slight tweak to the OTS circuit, just in terms of, of matching gains. Uh, but since that day, which is, well, I want to say that's been five years that that amp came out. Hmm. That's been my main amp. Cool. And it's just, it's, it's, I mean, I, you know, when I'm out at, uh, when I'm out at Wildwood, we've been using that for all of the videos out there when I've been going out there. Plus I do a ton of sessions when I'm out there. And, um, uh, a lot of times for, well, for Steve's son, Ethan, who writes this amazing music. And, uh, I do these sessions and I bring that amp in a guitar and a chord and, it's amazing. Steve's like, he's like, I can't believe all the different sounds you get. Because the cleans are great, slightly overdriven, a lot overdriven. You know, it's it's killer. So I literally go to, a, you know, gigs with a chord, that amp, a guitar, and we're done. Because the harmonic vibrato sounds like a univibe. So that covers kind of all my rotating speaker wants. The reverb is vivid as hell. I don't usually use delay anymore anyway. <laughs> but when I'm in the room here, I might. Uh, but you know, my first gig after COVID, I brought a little bit of a pedal board yeah. and, um, uh, and you know, I got done with the gig and I'm dealing with people and, you know, selling CDs and so on and so forth. And I went back over there and like, now I got to tear down all this shit. The very next day it was just back to the amp and a cord and we're done. And so we've worked on other things since then. We've got a head and cabinet version. Uh, there's a little gristle amp that's coming out. Like it should probably ship this month, which is a single EL 34. It's either 12 or 4 watts. It's got um, a volume gain. There's like a gain boost. One tone control and reverb. Single 12. Nice. Sounds killer. Yeah. Uh, and then there's going to be the, and that's called the Little Gristle. The Little and then Gristle. There's going to be, there's going to be the Greg Jr., which is basically just the clean and lead sound of the original Greg amplifier without the OTS, without the harmonic vibrato. But it will yeah. have reverb. Yeah. So harmonic vibrato, that's not something I've ever heard of before. Well, on the brown era amp, brown face amps from the early '60s, they had, they had that sound. And it's sound, when you hear it, it sounds like a univibe, but it takes three tubes to pull it off. So that's why Fender discontinued it. So when they went to the blackface era, they went with, uh, you know, what they called their, you know, the Vibrolux and so on, which is more of a uh, tremolo, really. To be honest, I don't know technically the difference, other than the fact that one sounds like a univibe and the other one doesn't. And so Fender stopped doing it because it was too expensive to have. The three tubes. So Dolph Koch figured out a way to do it with two tubes. So it's still a tube harmonic vibrato. It's it sounds different from the harmonic vibrato that's on the old Fender amps, 
But what I like about it is, is that it's got a it's got a rate and it's got the depth, but it's also got a volume control. Because a lot of times when you hit like a tremolo or a vibrato on an amp, you lose a little bit of balls. So with this, you can actually boost it. So it's cool. actually another stage. Yep. So when I hit that, I get a little bit more meat. Yep. So it's freaking awesome. Nice one. I'm not sure if there's a dealer um, for cock amplifiers here in Australia. I'd, I'd really love to check one of those out. Yeah, you when know, you, if you look on their if you look on their website, it should say. I think they do, they do have a, a, a distributor down there. Yeah, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Now they're the guys that used to have like upholstered looking amps as well, didn't they? Back in the back in the '60s or something. That was cock amplifiers, wasn't it? I don't know that they were. I don't think so. That was. Uh, that was the, those old custom amps back custom. in the day. Remember those? Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. Wrong amp. Cog Amplifier started at some point in, I want to say, the 90s, early 90s, maybe, late 80s. And where they really started to get a lot of headway is that Paul Reed Smith used to use all use a caulk amp at all of his in-stores. He would bring a caulk amp along. And at one point, they were going to make an amp together, and they could just never work it out. And so that's when Paul started to do his own amps. But for years on end, he used he used the cock amps. Uh huh. Cool, man. Before I go, I got, I got to laugh when I saw you at the um, the Fender Roadshow. Uh, James Ryan was hosting. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm James Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. And man, he struggled. He didn't want to pronounce your name right. He he didn't want to say cock. He was uh, he was oh he pronounced it a few different ways. He was. Cork, I think he called you Greg Cork. Yeah, it's cork. It, it, it's cork. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. all. Well, in, in German, it's actually you know koch. There's a little bit of a little yeah. spit that happens. And yeah. uh, but but my grandpa always would say cock. Yeah, he would say koch. He would get a little bit of spit going, yep. and then we just Americanized it a little bit more by saying cock. Yeah, you know, and I would, and then when I got to, I started saying rhymes with chalk. And then I would have people, and that's what my publishing company is, Rhymes with Chalk Music. But then I got people calling me Kalk and putting an L in there. And they still can't, they still can't fucking get it right. It's yeah, just. Yeah, And, and it so, depends you on know, the accent I, too. So that that explains to me why uh, James was saying your, your name the way it was. You must have said Rhymes with Chalk. chalk my accent, yeah. Chalk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because he there was saying Kalk. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, classic, classic. Mate, you know, I think. I know when I've asked all the right questions, when there's people in the chat room and they're not throwing a million questions at me, but they're all singing your praises. I think that means oh, I've asked them. the right questions that they were that they were thinking. So, excellent. Greg, I want to say thank you so much for your time. Well, thank uh, you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a very easy guy to to talk to. I'm not convinced that you and Ken Haas aren't actually the same person. Uh, do you ah. mind rolling up your sleeve a little to see if you've got the tattoos? Yeah, I got, I've got no tats. you got none, no tats? Oh, okay. No. I thought you were hiding the fact that you are actually Ken from Reverend Guitars because you guys are very similar personalities, and I can see how it would work uh, for you guys to be doing videos together. Yes. And, we're, we're Midwestern boys. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, man. So great to talk to you. Folks, say thank you to uh, Greg for his time. Yay! Oh, hey! <laughs> it comes to the time where I pick up my controller and I'm actually going to read it that I'm hitting the right button because I have been known to hit the wrong button before. I was mid-interview right. with Thomas McRockland. Do you remember Thomas McRockland? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was holding this in my hand and I fumbled and I had the – I had so I can customize this and put whatever, whatever I want on there. And I had an end broadcast – button on there and as i was talking to him i fumbled and i accidentally hit that and this was early days of me trying to do this streaming thing 
And I was absolutely shattered that I had to interrupt him mid-conversation and go, uh, Thomas, I'm really sorry, but I accidentally hit the end, end broadcast button. <laughs> <laughs> in hindsight now, it's like, yeah, whatever. People tune in for the train wreck. That's one thing I learned. Um, I became comfortable doing this when I was did one with Dave Friedman and Mark from Tone Talk. And I know both oh, yeah, those guys absolutely. and they're, they're top guys. And I remember saying to them before we went live, oh, guys, you might have to cover for me at first because I'm a bit stuttery and stammery for the first 10 minutes. And they went, ah, oh, relax. People tune in for the train wreck. If things fuck up, that's what they want to see. Right, right, right. One or two episodes later, I'm talking to Jennifer Batten, and she's, yeah. she's got a dog in her lap that jumps off her lap and takes out the power cord and rips down her laptop from on there. And at that point, I remember just looking at the camera going, People tune in for the, the train wreck. And, it, and it's just been plain sailing since then. Perfect. As you said before we went live, we lived it the first time. We don't have to watch any reruns. So, you know, exactly. I'm going to sit there looking at myself going, oh, my God, there's a pimple on my nose or something. Right. But, uh, yeah. No. Greg's been very, very lovely to talk to you, mate. Um, Likewise. Thanks for having me. I'm going to hit the button. It goes something like this. 